Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club podcast, or what my uncles called it at my uh, little sister's wedding. That thing that is not making any money. Why do you do that again? I'm Patrick Rapole. Uh With me, as always, is... Jim Laskowski. I was about to introduce you, and then I realized we don't do that. God, it sounded like it was a different podcast Price is I right to. or something. Yeah. <laughs> you always sound like a TV announcer, Jim. You get so manic at the beginning of these. The, you uh, about forty five minutes in, we settle in and everything's good. But like for the first, yeah, twenty minutes or so, you're you're real Ed McMahon up in this. I'm just um, so excited, I can't hide it. Me too. And I'm uh, about with to lose us, control. With us, uh, we're so excited. Very special guest, Sean Pierce. Uh, he's a local uh, filmmaker in Chicago, uh, part of uh, Punctuation Films. Uh, Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. You you uh, emailed me expressing um, a lot of love for the director of the episode, which is... Vim Vendors. You're right. <laughs> I, did I get it right this time? Oh, that's not that's no good. I've just been watching a bunch of Shaw Brothers <laughs> movies. You guys are going to be talking about Wings of Desire. I'm going to be talking about Flying Guillotine. Um, it's not going to match up. No, I don't think no, so. That's... That's next. That's next episode. We're doing Tarantino. Um, so Vim Vendors is a favorite of Jim's, or was a favorite of Jim's. I don't know how Jim feels about Vim Vendors now. Now that he's watched a lot of his uh, lesser films. Mm. Well, I will give him mad props for making three incredible movies. <laughs> um, and I've seen about four or five. I was kind of cold on so. <laughs> It's going to be an interesting discussion because, yeah, I mean, usually when I click with the director, um, you know, I mean, I try to watch as many of their films as I can. And this time around when I was watching Latter-day Vendors films, I was kind of like, is this the same guy who made Paris, Texas, Wings of Desire? I just, I felt like there's a complete disconnect, but we'll get all, we'll we'll get to all that later on. I'd like to hear a little bit more about Sean, because I know um, he's starting up a Kickstarter as well for his upcoming feature-length film. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tell us about – so so before Sean emailed us, uh, Sean uh, sent me a message on uh, Twitter uh, via Punctuation Films, or at least someone on Punctuation Films Twitter Yeah, did, I think it was me. Uh, to check out a short film they did called uh, Meathead Goes Hog Wild, and it's a four-minute, just delightfully anarchic movie of a man going mad – with meat cravings, um, <laughs> it's a lot. A lot of footage that you can tell was uh, sort of film jackass style, where the, <laughs> there are unsuspecting uh, pedestrians. Uh, t- uh, but um, it's really fun if you want guys. If you want to look it up, Meathead Goes Wilds on Vimeo. Um, but you guys are doing a uh, Kickstarter for a feature length. Yeah, we're currently uh, doing a Kickstarter right now for the feature length Meathead Goes Hog Wild and. Uh, I promise uh, if anyone looks up this short film, it's a, a much better version of that. It's much more fleshed out. That The short is more just a kind of a lark. Um, the feature film kind of tackles some bigger themes, and hopefully we do it more articulately than sure. the short film. Um, yeah, we're about halfway through the Kickstarter, or I guess a weekend out of three weeks, and um, we're looking to raise pretty small amount, $6,000, and we're almost a third of the way there. So. That's cool. So yeah, I mean that's I mean I think that's the advantage of short film. That's what makes short films interesting is they can just be more spontaneous and they can just 
like Meathead Goes Hog Wild, it's not a brilliant movie or particularly, you know, like, yeah, and doesn't try or, to or be. like brilliant <laughs> or like just beautifully shot or well acted, but like it has a manic energy to it. And because it's a short film, it's able to keep up that manic energy really well. And I mean, that's what I like about watching short films is that sort of thing. Um, yeah, definitely. We made it in in a little less than a day, and uh, it was more like a, I bought a new camera, and we were like, "How can we test this out? We don't want to do a camera test with rack focuses on trees, right?" So we were like, "Let's do just on location." It's a very tiny camera, so we're like, "Let's just do it on location on the street." Some guy just going hog wild, and we I had a. Uh, gift, I won a thing where I was one of the first 50 people in line to a Meatheads, the uh-huh. restaurant. So I got free burgers for a year. <laughs> really? or, but what it really was was like uh, $7 in credit a week. Uh-huh. And you can only eat so much Meatheads. So um, at the end, you had to spend it all within that year. So at the very end, like the last week was also with the camera. And I had about like over $100 worth of meat. So I was like, "How okay, we can do a camera test with a, over $100 of meat, and Meathead Goes Hog Wild was the result. And it's, uh, it's worth checking out, but uh, don't judge the feature based on the short film. Sure, you're expanding it. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, it's more like man fucks food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been it's, to uh, uh, that... There's a Meatheads on Western? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's the one where we... Uh, that it's, it's actually featured in the film. We give a nice little uh, shout-out to it. Cause we... Oh, sure, yeah. Good stuff. Shout-out to the, e- the easily startled uh, <laughs> customers of Meatheads. Yeah. Oh, cool. So that's really that's really cool. Do you have any other uh, business to take care of, Jim? Uh, not off the top of my head. Um I started writing for a Grand Rapids-based movie blog called thefilmtakeout.com. My uh, review of Under the Skin is up there, but uh, I was offered the opportunity to write a weekly column, and I'm struggling to think of, like, a theme or an idea or just something that would be interesting to other people. Like, I I initially thought, like, um, because I saw a list on Letterboxd for... Movies that are out of print that were never even released on DVD, but I thought, A, that's probably going to be hard to find those titles, um, even through illegal means, and plus, how interesting would that be for people who can, you know, who can't even track these movies down, you know? You could do a weekly column where you review Mr. Ed uh, episodes. Thanks. Or just, you know, keep up on The Bachelorette this season? Sure, sure, sure. I watched Mr. Ed, by the way. I don't want to hear what you think. That show's terrible. <laughs> I know. I don't know. It's really bad. It's just as bad as you would think. It's just it. It is baseline level like fifty sitcom, like just really. It helps bad to drink like, beer that just has the horse. high. By the way, content in it when you're watching it. Sure, sure. Then anything becomes um, funny. I was, I was, I was disappointed that it's not. Uh, it's not a horse chewing peanut butter. They actually like ran wire. Through the horse's mouth. What? Really? Like under its lip and made it flap up and down. I kept reading it's peanut butter. No, it's it's uh, at least the episode I saw. And then when I later looked up on my IMDb, the trivia said that, yeah, it was, they like had a, like sort of a device. <laughs> it would flip its upper gum up and down. Oh. And it just stood there and, and took it? And it just stood there, yeah. There you go. Wow. Hmm. 
you know. I still don't know how they got the horse to you know pick up the phone and do all these crazy things. I was like, wow, that's amazing. That's a really talented horse. Yeah. I've course. never seen the show, but I'm imagining this poor horse being wrapped in wires and being yeah. forced. Yeah, it's basically a marionette horse, but the live <laughs> horse turned into a marionette with razor wire. It um, turns into and the whole time uh, his eyes are crying. It turns into uh, Tetsu, the Horseman. <laughs> yeah, it's basically Tetsuo, the Horseman. Every scene. Every scene, instead of like that sort of uh, fade to black or dissolve or whatever those sitcoms had back then, every scene just the camera slowly pushes into his eyes, which are crying. <laughs> and then you hear the sound of a choir screaming, and then it cuts to the next scene. It's really weird. I, I mean, I understand why you like it. It's just funny isn't the word. Uh, disturbing is more the word I would use. Well, you find horses disturbing. I think they're Yeah, cool. that's true. I hate, I hate horses. I think they're gross looking. But I, yeah. I, I guarantee that... I would if a horse uh, had really good comedy writers. I would not hold that against the horse. Yeah, "Goodbye um, Horses" is still your favorite song. Well, yeah, yeah, but um, that's a that's for a different reason. That's for a, a tucking kind oh, of reason. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to go into uh, what we watched this week? I think I do. Attack of the Yeoman, the Shining of the Shin, Yojimbo, the Lip E.T. And please vote for me, the good son. And the conversation, long way round, E.P. goes down one Mona Lisa smile, night and fog to boot. Forever young, the man of two, poised and the loom. Two climates, vertigo clue. One week to the wonder, evil dead too. Don't you speak, us boot life, a chorus line, the birds. Trying the other guys, life aquatic, talk to her. Kage Musha freaks, Joe State in Maine. Brazil finally came, she hate the shame. I watch something else to add it to the movies we watch this week. Baby, baby, I watch something else. Inception and the long Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sean. Uh, we usually start with the guest. Uh, what, have, what have you seen recently? Um. Well, watched a couple movies recently. I watched. Uh, the Legend of Bagger Vance, which I will skip over, because sure. that movie, uh, I saw, it was on Netflix, and I put it on about one in the morning, and I uh, watched it all. <laughs> wow. That's all I can Were say about it. Were you expecting to fall asleep during <laughs> it? I, I put it on, because I couldn't fall asleep, and normally I, I put on Chops to fall asleep. Yes. Now you're talking my language. into the <laughs> cooking competition, and I yes. can't fall asleep, so I was like, oh, movie about golf with magical... Caddies, I'll fall asleep immediately, and yeah. I watched it all. But um, I'll talk about, uh, recently had on Netflix, they added the Paradise Trilogy, which is uh, three films by a guy whose name I won't pronounce because I will destroy it. It's an Austrian filmmaker. Um, and I saw the first one a year ago, Paradise Love, at the Gene Siskel it played for a week, and mm. I absolutely loved it. But they added all three of them onto Netflix, Unfortunately, I thought they just added the third one because when I searched it, that's all I found. So I watched the third one, and um, it's called Paradise Hope, and it's about a, and in Austria, so it kind of ties in with the filmmaker. But it's a, 
about a fat camp of uh, teenage girls. And, well, the main character is a teenage girl, but it's guys and girls. And it's kind of like her story of becoming a, a woman, blossoming into a young, beautiful, heavyset woman. And uh, it's just kind of the way it's shot, the way that it's... It's just a lot of it is just uh, like uh, static shots of well-composed scenes of uh, obese children working out, doing various uh, activities. But um, is, it, kind of, is, it, is it like a comedy? It's a, it's a dark comedy. They're okay. they're all like um, it's a very uh, steeped in irony and trilogy. Where it's like the first one, Paradise Love, is about old Austrian women who uh, go to um, Africa kind of to vacation slash find love. Okay. And the African men uh, use this to their advantage to kind of make them sugar mamas. <laughs> so it's like uh, very uh, buff Africans uh, kind of using sex to get money out of uh, lonely, rich Austrian women. And it's uh, the guy's done documentaries before, so it has a very, mm-hmm. it's like very composed, but you can tell it's non-actors, natural lighting, and it's just gorgeous, and it's just kind of the, totally the film I just kind of love. And there's all three of them are on Netflix, and they're definitely worth checking out. Cool. Interesting. Yeah, I've, I've seen a couple of still images here, and it sort of reminds me of uh, uh, Todd Salons or Dogtooth, at least the aesthetic. Yeah, if you, have, if you like those kind of films or you like kind of almost like observational films that are like um, very realistic, but... It's, it's kind of very high concept in terms of what it is. Hmm. You'll definitely be drawn to it. And I think if you like Wim Benders, you should definitely Did check you, it out. Uh, what's the second movie? The second movie is Paradise Faith, and it's about um, a Christian woman who's very religious, and her husband is... Um, I'm not, I don't want to say if he's Islamic or Muslim, but it's just... And then them kind of arguing about religion. I haven't seen that one. Okay. But um, definitely... I would say, seeing as I've seen the first and the third, that all three are more worth checking out. You can watch them separately? Or they, they're they very it? loosely, like, uh, in the first one, the woman kind of leaves her daughter and goes in the first five minutes and goes to Africa, and then she gets, like, a text message in it from her daughter, and then the third one is follows her daughter, and there's a scene where she texts, but it's, like, very loosely connected. Okay. So you can kind of so watch So just them. sort of exists in the same world and thematically, but not really tight. Oh yeah, you could watch the third one first, and then watch the. I I almost imagine that you could watch them out of order, and it would make just as much sense sure. if you watched all three. Sure, that sort of stuff's really interesting. I I tend to there's this weird, and I don't know if this is just that film nerds on the internet tend to be just more into nerdier kind of stuff, but there's this weird tendency to group movies in trilogies. Oh yeah, that aren't. Actually related. Oh, you hate that, don't you, Patrick? Because it's really irritating to me when people. Oh, you know, you know that was his. That that's Edgar Wright's Blood and Blood and Ice Cream trilogy. It's like, or Edgar Wright is a very specific director who makes a certain kind of movie. Like, yeah. or, oh, this is Lars von Trier's Apocalypse trilogy. Like, you could, I could probably name four other movies that could fit into that apocalypse theme. Like, I think they do it just to uh, gain funding. <laughs> like, like it's like, oh, I don't want to do a sequel to this movie, but hey, that movie made money. It's kind of a sequel. You should yeah. Check it. Okay. <laughs> like, so you think it's like sort of just in the indie world? Yeah, it's like the world's end. You don't need to see the other two. But people are like, eh, it kind of completes the trilogy. It goes all full yeah. circle. 
So then it's like, you know, I'd only get that, but then you get like people checking out the other two. It's like a, I think, I feel like it kind of doesn't come from a genuine place. Right. Yeah. I just wish, yeah. I don't like when people talk in marketing terms. Oh, yeah. When they're, you know, when they're not in the marketing <laughs> of a movie. But uh, I, I don't mind when movies are like that, when they're like, are like specific. Oh, yeah. They're very much connected. conceived. In, yeah, like a text a message, story. like that text message, that's a very specific. Yeah, sort it's of, the sort same cast and. And yeah, obviously, the, very much. I haven't seen the three colors. I imagine the three colors. That's that's sort of how I always imagine the three colors is. Yeah, I feel like before you make the first one, you have to at least like. It's almost like sometimes they make one and then they make a second one, kind of like similar, and then they're like, "Oh, I should just complete this." Yeah, I don't know why people can't just stop it too, or like maybe a quadrilogy. You know? I think it's. I, I think it might be also just people going, "Oh, so when are you going to complete the trilogy?" Yeah, <laughs> just like they get tired. Like of that they did question. with uh, before. Midnight. Yeah. But now they're just fucked because then it's like, oh, now it needs to go forever. Everyone <laughs> 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 said, like, when are you going to complete the trilogy? And then it was like, so you're going to do when, this for the when when, when, uh, <laughs> when we wind up in nursing homes, basically. Yeah. Like, I love how that's what people jump to. Like, after yeah. they did the third one, they're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to see them as old people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot, I forgot who said, um, uh, I can't wait for uh, the before movies to turn into uh, a more. By Michael Haneke. Yeah, like, yeah. That, that's yeah. a. Real <laughs> I can't wait for them to run out of good titles. So mm-hmm. like the ninth one is like before lunch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, eventually they're going to switch to after sunrise. Yeah. After yeah. sunset. Yeah, it's almost like the full rotation of the sun around the earth. Something super pretentious. Right uh, af- after the vernal equinox. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it would be funny though if he just felt uh, obliged to keep making them, but he just his heart wasn't in it, oh, so yeah. they just got worse and worse until he, he just would just film it like an experimental film where they're just eating dinner, yeah, and not it's, talking. It's all one shot. That's the concept they come up with, but really they're just like, let's just fucking knock this but, thing out. But because everyone's so obsessed with the series, it still goes to like seven hundred theaters. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, it's like, well, I mean, this is really bold, but uh, Ethan Hawke's amazing. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, like with each one, people. Like, that's a lot of pressure on all of them. Yeah. Like, most people consider the third one the best. Most people consider Ethan Hawke best in the third one. So it's like, they have they basically are like, in nine years, we have to outdo ourselves with the fourth. No one thinks about that with any other film franchise. Right. Yeah. It's. I mean, and obviously that's something that Linklater is interested in. I mean, he... He set himself up to fail when he made Boyhood. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, he's ruined it. Like, that could have... Boyhood, like, apparently Boyhood's amazing, but Boyhood could have been so fucking bad, like, if the lead actor just grew up to be just <laughs> horrible. To, like, yeah. <laughs> like, he took it... Like, that's a pretty big risk, so it's clearly something he's interested in, but it, it is funny at the, uh, the kind of level of expectation audiences have, and they'll yeah. put upon like, filmmakers. It seemed like he... When he was in, like, me and Orson Welles mode, people yeah. were like, oh, he's done. Yeah. And then now it's like before midnight. Bernie was really good, and then Boyhood's apparently like, according to everyone, the best thing right. ever. So it's <laughs> they like, do that a lot. They go, like, "Oh what? man, this director is back," you know? Yeah, like David Gordon Green, especially. But it's like he started making that movie twelve years ago. So it's like while he was making Bad News Bears, he yeah. was also shooting Boyhood. Right, you know exactly. What I mean? yeah. So it's like a weird thing where it's like people wrote him off, but he was also doing the best thing he ever did. So are people going to like revisionist history? Yeah, and Bad News Bears. Be, you know, there's actually like if you look, there's some thematic links between Boyhood and Bad News Bears. That that one guy in the wheelchair who's real. That one kid in the wheelchair is real salty. Like <laughs> I can see that in the uh, sister character. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. 
Uh, it, uh, it reminds me also of like, uh, like, um, people, uh, the, there are filmmakers who are big because they actively know how to court that. Like, obviously Kevin Smith is the biggest one. Kevin Smith knows that people will go to him and want to know, well, what's gonna happen next with clerks or whatever? And he knows just what to say to string them along and like, to build his universe and then become the empire of his universe and everything. And like, Quentin Tarantino is another one who's just like, his He's like an amazing filmmaker. He's almost as good of a celebrity. He's just like good at talking and like making people adore him. And I remember when he, when they did the uh, when they like the, all the rumors about the Hateful Eight were starting, and then it's a like script leak, and he's like, I don't want to do it anymore. People were like, Well, you have to do it. You already said you would. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, this is like, Tarantino being a baby. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> he's like getting accosted the, on the, the Bango street. Brothers or the million other yeah, films. Exactly. <laughs> Like, I'm, isn't the third Kill Bill supposed to come out right around now where the daughter yeah. grew up? That, like, Kill Bill. <laughs> directed by Richard Linkletter. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah, gonna follow her throughout all her training. Don't send out press releases until the script is done. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, like, Kevin Smith is the, is so, like, outrageously. It's like, yeah. I love how he's like, like he's, it's like kind of infamous that he never smoked weed that much until like after uh, Zach and Miri. Right. And then he'll like be like, now nah, like, you know what? Like, weed didn't affect me. It just helps me go about my life. But like, <laughs> if, you look at, if you look at him, like after Zach and Miri until like now, all he does is just like kind of like hang out at his house with weird dudes and just like podcast and like come up with like cool ideas that is like, Hey, we were just like talking, and then like we like thought this would be a good idea, and like my wife's gonna direct it, and this guy's, and he just like makes up stuff, and then yeah. like does it, but doesn't, you know what I mean? Like that, well, that's and it's funny that that's the flip side of Tarantino, which is used that why well, I was always smoking pot, and it's like well, why did it take you like six years in between Jack, Jackie Brown and Kill Bill? He's like I was just smoking a lot of pot and watching movies, and now <laughs> with all my filmmaker friends. Well, but, what is it? I remember when I saw an interview where he was talking about uh. Django, and he was saying that it was the hardest script he ever wrote, and I was like, oh, I wonder why. And then it was because, um, what's that guy's name? Alan Ball. Yeah. His was his next door neighbor, and he had like a outrageous bird that like, <laughs> that, like uh, made noises all the time, and then so I was like, interest peaked. So I like looked it up, and like, Quentin Tarantino like, like put like a, called the police, and like tried to get the bird removed from the apartment, and like all this stuff where like, while writing Django, like, he was, like, dealing with this, like, bird thing that was interrupting his writing. Oh, my God. I just want to see the movie version of this. I'm surprised <laughs> in Django there wasn't, like, just, just cut to a shot of just a bird that exploded. Yeah, yeah, like, just one of one of Django's bullets goes flying and, and <laughs> yeah. kills Candy's, like, prized parakeet or something. <laughs> yeah. How could Alan Ball be writing True Blood with an annoying bird? Well, I think he, I think he left True Blood. Uh, and I, okay. I'm going to... Stay here on the record. It was because he couldn't write because the bird. Yeah. <laughs> Scoop. <laughs> Scoop. <laughs> you heard it here first. Oh, man. Yeah, it's it's shitty. Like, I people just, you know, that's I, 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 that's why I was, like, kind of happy, like, when Edgar Wright left Ant-Man, because it was just sort of, I was just sort of like, oh, that proves that you're willing to not do a thing just because you feel like you have to do a thing. <laughs> like, Edgar Wright, at this point, like, he could be, a big Hollywood director. He has its own fan base. He's, you know, he be not yeah. necessarily next Christopher Nolan, but you know, make the kind of nerd he, has that he wants to make. Geek cred that yeah. also seems to be able to parlay into like a two hundred million dollar movie. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. He, 
there, he could make an Iron Man three or something. Oh yeah, in the in the right context. Uh, whereas like Shane Black, not necessarily the first name you think of when you think of like Marvel, but like in the right context, he made a great you know very. Successful yeah, I don't really like the Iron Man movies, but I did like Iron Man three because it was almost like a buddy cop. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's all Shane Black writes. <laughs> I was just surprised it wasn't set during Christmas. It was. It was. It was. Set oh, you're Christmas. right. The it big was. bunny. Yeah, it was set during Christmas. Yeah, of course it was. Shane Black. It's like, oh no, he had a lot to do with the script. It was set during Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I love how like there was probably a draft written, and he's like, we need to change everything. Yeah. Date Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> like that's like the first thing he does. Like it just says like uh, exterior. Christmas tree lot. Like, that's yeah. how every one of his scripts are. Every single one of his scripts eventually, other than uh, the, the first lethal weapon, has the Christmas tree lot re- scene removed. Yeah. Like, and in front of their graphs, are like, all right, um, there's no story reason. That's well, fine. I already got my Kiss Christmas Kiss Bang Bang was set during Christmas, right? Yeah, yeah, but that, uh, but uh, lethal weapon had the actual fight scene in the Christmas tree lot. Oh, yeah. When he's testing the cocaine and stuff. But, like, yeah, like, so, like, I like that Edgar Wright is not just. Setting um, things during Christmas. Yeah, yeah. It, it would really piss me off if Shaun of the Dead was a winter movie. It would have been totally different. Nah, it, it, I'm glad Shaun uh, that Edgar Wright can just sort of walk away and not just. I know, like a hundred million nerds are like sad that he's not making Ant Man, but like it's cool that he can just be like, I'm. That's fine. I don't uh, harp I'll, on that stuff. I mean, it's it's it it's not baffling to me, but I just don't find it as interesting. To listen to a two-hour discussion on X Men or something like, I understand why, you know, people harp on like specific details and, uh, you know, like oh this this has uh, continuity errors or this doesn't match with the comic book and wait blah, what are you blah. talking about? <laughs> well, I mean, like how people uh, focus so intensely on details regarding comic book movies or who's doing what and you know. Oh yeah, just like the general obsession with comic movies. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about continuity errors, especially with this latest X Men. Oh, like the yeah, the the, uh, not like not like Iron Man was holding the cup in the other hand. (laughs) No, no, no. The water levels were just obscene. (laughs) Yeah, bloodstain, bloodstain gone, bloodstain, bloodstain gone. (laughs) (laughs) When I went to see the new X Men movie, I just walked out thinking, "Man, that was entertaining." What's next? You know? Talking about continuity, the new X-Men movie. Do you, is that what you want to talk about? No. Okay. <laughs> but you did see it. Well, I mean... So that's, that would have been a good segue. It yeah. would have been. But I guess... Speaking it's of continuity, I watched, uh, I watched Empire. I watched Andy Warhol's Empire. Nice. No, I think it's just, you know, uh, probably because of the podcast we do, but also I just wouldn't think, like... I mean, unless there was, like, you know, specific details about... You know the X Men movies that really stand out. I can't imagine like, I mean, you did you did a great episode on superhero movies in general um, with uh, Daniel Kibblesmith and stuff. That was more about the broad phenomenon of superhero yeah. movies. Yeah, and Daniel Kibblesmith is an amazingly funny person who happens to also be a huge comic book nerd. So, but right. like, I, I don't. We didn't really geek out. <laughs> we were sort of more bemused at the idea. Yeah, I just think it's a solid summer blockbuster entertaining movie, and that's that's the most I can say. I, I, can, I can tell you what our fans want to know is how good does Hugh Jackman's butt look? <laughs> oh, it's impeccable. Yeah, that's what I that's that's what I thought. Who cares about it? I, I, I heard he, I heard his butts in it. I got I got excited all over again. Yeah, I that's even what. Seen, 
and that's why I went. Movies. That's exactly why I went. I didn't care that there was a time travel element at all. All right. Well, there we go. We got the uh, Hugh Jackman butt update in. That's our new our new segment. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Check us next week to, where we tell you if Hugh Jackman's butt shows up in Under the Skin. <laughs> yeah. And of course, my um, br- my brain immediately um, after seeing X Men, I just thought of Mad X Men. What's that? Mad X Men. Because I just Mad- watched the Mad. Basically, I went from. Seeing X Men in the theater to watching the uh, Mad Men finale. Oh, Mad Men. Okay. Yeah. As in Mad Men. Is the finale happening already? Yeah. Are they doing this the mid season. The mid season finale thing? Yeah. Seven episodes, then waiting that's, a year. That's uh, I guess I don't care. I don't. I always catch up on it later. I don't. <laughs> I don't have cable, so. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's good. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, I'm just. Uh, as far as dividing the seasons up, I guess that doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't affect me one way or another. I have, man, I'm gonna have to go back and watch it all though. I cannot remember how. I know happened. because we have to wait a year. It's hard to retain everything that happened the season before. You know, yeah, especially you... now with the half season. Yeah, it's like, things are just getting started. I, I, I mean, what I always liked about Mad Men was that it is sort of totally uh, unconcerned with what an, an av- with the viewer's conception of how a season of television should operate. Every single season of Mad Men ends up going the same way, where it's like, uh, first episode, everyone's super excited. They're like, oh, yes, fucking Mad Men. It's back. This show's awesome. And then it's like, I don't know where the season's going. Like, what's yeah, the point People are always this? wondering. <laughs> Don seems really sad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't, like, there doesn't seem to be a lot of movement around. Oh, anything. no, Don's drunk again. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then like, and then people are like, but you know this is, like, 1966, so they're going to cover... <laughs> like, yeah. people seem to every season forget that Madman doesn't give a shit about, like, history hijacking its show. <laughs> and then, in retrospect, you go back and you watch the season, and you're like, oh, it's like fucking amazing season of television. But, like, it's so unconcerned with the sort of... Like, this is the thing I think is Breaking Bad's greatest, Breaking Bad's greatest strength, which is every single episode is a cliffhanger in a, a perfect way that it doesn't feel, like, horrible yeah. and contrived, where it's, like, just a perfect season of television. Um, because you're, because just every episode you're like, oh my god, how's it going? What's going to happen? Oh, oh, how are they going to get out of this one? Whereas like Mad Men is just totally unconcerned with that. Speaking so, of uh, perfect and yeah. not contrived, see segue time. Go ahead. I got to do it every episode now. It's sure. like expected. Well, you're so good at it. I know, smooth <laughs> like a baby's butt. What do you say? So I hate to sound like a broken record, but. What uh, I watched this week was another favorite movie of my dad's that I didn't initially love. Um, But now, I think it might be my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Um, You know what made me revisit Blood Simple? Crime Wave? No. Blood Simple, yeah. You know what made me revisit it was a very good retrospective piece by Mike D'Angelo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, where he talks about the entire filmography. Um, oh, that's right. I read that. He that was a really on that was on the dissolve, right? Yes. Where he goes through sort of the uh, the history of the Comrades. It was mm-hmm. really good. It's well, it's also really good because it's the sort of thing that a lot of people will want to read. But Mike D'Angelo is the sort of critic who does not have the same opinion as a lot of people. Yes. So the comment you go to that in the comic section and people are like, "What the fuck are you talking about? Big Lebowski's a classic." I know, <laughs> right? It's so angry at Mike D'Angelo because. He just has very different taste than a lot of people. Well, I was also just curious to see which films 
he's given five stars since he's not the type of critic to throw those out casually, you know? Yeah. And thankfully with letterbox, you can just sort of go to a specific critic and just filter it out. Um, and like, I'd started making a list of like, Oh, he gave this movie five stars. I haven't seen this and I've always wanted to. Um, so it's a good incentive, but so I sat down with the Blu-ray with headphones on and for this viewing, I fell in love with almost every single thing about it. Uh, I sort of overlooked my initial reservation with the, um, the lead guy, John Getz. I just, like, I didn't connect with him. I thought, I didn't think he was very charismatic. Um, and, you know, he was <laughs> so overshadowed by the rest of the cast, particularly em- Emmett Walsh. But I, I, I think this movie cemented the themes of a lot of Coen Brothers movies. Uh, Miscommunication, misperception of events, and obviously, you know, uh, a heist involving money and bad choices leading to a comeuppance. And it's essentially a film noir that sort of takes the infidelity plot of something like Body Heat and just makes it completely its own. Um, But, like, the one thing is just everything that happens... Or seems to fit organically in this logical storytelling sense where it's this happens, then this happens. And it's all plausible. But um, something that I love about my favorite filmmakers is their sort of recurring motifs. And the attention to detail in this movie, I mean, it's kind of obvious even on a first viewing, like just the choices to zoom in on a particular item like a ceiling fan or a bug zapper, all those things. But they sort of highlight the themes in this movie. And that's something that I like really identified with more uh, this time is just, okay, why, why are we, you know, so focused on a ceiling fan? Well, it's to sort of uh, accentuate the insularity that the characters are going through. Um, And just repetition of certain imagery sort of just signifies, well, this is a pattern that's kind of repeating itself. And the sound design is just flawless. Like, the fact that, like, windshield wipers, you know, almost, like, uh, seamlessly uh, blends into the next scene where they're in the motel room. And I just think like that kind of attention to detail is something that most filmmakers probably don't focus on, but the Coens do it so well. Um, and I just, I don't know, like I think I like the simplicity of this movie the most. And, you know, the one thing I appreciate the most about this film is something that I either love or kind of become indifferent towards, and that's characters discussing the themes of of a, of a movie or a story that doesn't happen at all in this movie. And as much as I love Cormac McCarthy's voice, no country for old men just has so many like diatribes and dialogue exchanges about free will, the nature of evil, all that stuff. But here it's just the actions sort of dictate the themes and the ideas. I think no country for old men though is sort of, I think people don't necessarily like even just the way it starts it's i think that's more heightened than something like blood simple in the way that those speeches never bother me they seem to fit i mean yeah we talking no, about totally. this, we'll be talking about vim vendors later so we will be talking about a didactic <laughs> philosophical dialogue and uh which in which context it, it fits the best but uh i i do think uh you can't really undersell how much of a boogeyman like um uh 
Caviar. Antarctica is, yeah. and uh, and sort of how much, yeah, how heightened that kind of that movie is. And though I mean, obviously, a, a movie like Blood Simple. What, what? Who's the main actor again in Blood Simple? A guy named John Getz, who I he? knew from Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Who's he playing that? <laughs> uh, he plays the lead guy, who's um, the guy that works at the corn dog thing. Uh, he works at the bar and he's cheating clown on dog? the clown, clown dog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy! I knew that. Oh, he works. Oh, like where she gets a job and he works there. Um, the love interest is he the love interest? Yeah, well, I mean, he's the, he's dog. the guy cheating. Well, I mean, he's not the guy cheating. Francis McDormand is cheating on Dan Hedaya. I think we're okay. As much as I love Coen Brothers directed, who, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. We're getting it mixed up here. We're asking who he is. Don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. Oh, you're asking? Oh, that's right. He that is being the said, guy Francis with McDormand the corn dogs. Brilliant, yeah. and don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. Yeah, that's as, right. As mom. <laughs> Not in it very much, but she leaves an impression. I know he's in some other stuff. I can't remember, but I just—is that the only time in a Coen Brothers movie where the lead is not just like a character actor? Like, I guess technically George Clooney's not a character actor, but he always kind of plays a character actor kind of type, and when he's the lead in their movies, but like, yeah. I mean, I, the issue I had initially was just like, man, this guy is just so passive and stoic, and I can't imagine what what Francis McDormand sees in him. Yeah, I I wonder if that was just like it was their first movie. They had to, like, if they made it again, they would cast someone like him. I I haven't seen Blood Simple in a long time, so I couldn't tell you exactly how he fits in. Like, maybe the fact that he's kind of blank is uh, the point, and kind of bland almost is the point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he, he does play kind of a, you know, not necessarily a cipher, just a guy who's, you know, just doing things without thinking much about it. And I think that's what's interesting too is like he doesn't have like a big emotional reaction to when he's you know cleaning up the blood of a crime scene. He's just doing it, you know, just like almost out of his nature. Like, well, I guess I got to do this thing, and doesn't really ruminate a lot about it. And I think that's the thing about a lot of a lot of movies where emotion is so at the forefront that. Or at least, like, let's talk about what why this character is doing this, or let's harp on this one thing. Whereas, you know, here it's a fully realized world where, okay, you know, I'm going to play this recurring song on a jukebox, but it's also going to mean something. Um, you know, the the I think it's the Four Tops song. It's just the same old song, and that's, you know, playing it kind of, interesting points throughout the movie, including when he has to clean up all the blood and how the blood just can't, you know, ever be cleaned up is kind of a big uh, thematic element to the movie. But I just, I just love how fatalistic it is, but it's also about just complete misunderstanding and kind of a, just a dark comical way that the Coen brothers just sort of um, kept, you know, re-emphasizing through different contexts with with each of their stories. I think it's like they're very fatalistic, but they're not completely out of touch of humanity. just don't have a lot of faith in it. Um, You know, the opening monologue of this movie, which I don't know if it was in the original cut or not, but it's sort of, 
it does echo something like No Country for Old Men, where, like, here in Texas, everybody's just out for themselves. And, you know, that, to me, is, like, one of the more obvious things to include, just this, you know, like, well, I'm basically going to tell you what's going to happen, and my view of humanity. But I think it's just great, and the thing that I love that D'Angelo points out is the very final moment is just, again, like kind of the summation of what the Coen brothers do so well. It is, uh, you know, a, a incredibly dark and gory uh, confrontation, yet it's funny because the character himself just starts laughing at the misunderstanding. And, you know, the fact that, like, we're all subjected to this sort of fatalistic um, end and I, I really love how smart and tight and everything um, in this movie more than any other Coen Brothers movie. As much as I love something like Barton Fink because it plays on so many levels, you know, existentially and clearly, you know, it's a personal film for them. Um, I think I just love the idea of, a you know, this kind of story done with this kind of technical expertise. Um and there's a new movie come, you know, that just came out called Blue Ruin, which has gotten a lot of comparisons to Blood Simple. It's it's not nearly as good, but it's an example of you know a movie where just the actions happen, the characters don't necessarily like contemplate it, and it just sort of flows really effortlessly. It's just a really great movie too. Yeah, I just watched uh, Blue Ruin uh, the other day. And uh, yeah, I really like the first uh, 15, 20 minutes when you yeah. kind of don't know. And then from th- there's some big event that I won't spoil for anyone that wants to watch it. But then after that, I I'll be, I could not stand the movie. Just where it goes, he's the, there's a certain look of the character, mm-hmm. and then and then there's a change in his look. Oh yeah, he just the way he looks and it's just like <laughs> credibility gone. It's just this. For lack of a better word, he's just like a mope, and I just I couldn't. The, it's the way it goes. I don't know. I just totally lost. Where it goes, it's very predictable. I thought, yeah, like. but the first fifteen twenty minutes, I was really on board, and I was really enjoying it. I mean, yeah. Blood Temple is uh, uh, Blood Temple. Obviously, wasn't the first neo noir. We're going to be no. talking about the American Friend later, but like, well, I think Blood Simple was a very good example for a lot of independent filmmakers of oh. Here is something that is exciting and then you can sell, but it's not very expensive. And I think Blood Symbols had a big impact on... Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, it has inspired tons of movies. I mean, obviously, it was remade in, I believe, China as the woman had gone in a noodle mm-hmm. shop. Um, very so, faithful. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that so many years later there's still, there are still movies that are getting compared to Blood Simple because it's just... It's the same as, you know, a ton of movies that get compared to, uh, like, any other foundational kind of successful independent movie you know it's just a fundamentally good idea is you know is sort of small town noir yeah and it's perfect I mean like the sound design it had to have I mean I know David Lynch was already making movies but and it could just be because you know it, it's a, it's actually a really interesting and different experience to just sort of uh, insulate yourself through headphones and listen to a movie that way. Um, I mean, there are definitely times when I go to the movies where I notice sort of the uh, the stereo effect 
of like, okay, you know, this sound is on the left side of the theater versus the right side, and that kind of yeah, stuff can be distracting. But yeah, the surround sound element of it is can be interesting or distracting, and for some reason, like the more I watch movies um, on Blu-ray using my headphones, it sort of changes the experience a little bit just because like I'm even more hyper aware of choices made by the directors to okay I'm going to accentuate this particular thing or you know the bug zapper has to be super loud right at this specific at this specific moment so yeah like I just I don't know like there's something about blood simple and its simplicity and just like the fact that this was this was their debut and um it's not too showy I mean even like the the you know the goofy camera tricks that you know Raimi might have done back in those days, then they don't come across as being um, you know showy or anything. That's what I love about it. They're really controlled, confident filmmakers that I absolutely see, like. The more I rewatch their movies, the more I love them. And this one, I can see why uh, Mike D'Angelo said it was one of their best for sure. Yeah, I. I don't I I don't like watching movies on my laptop so I rarely watch with headphones but I as someone who doesn't have a surround sound head up I probably should do that every once in a while cuz I have all the you know I have all these Blu-rays and DVDs that have you know 5.1 audio that I've never experienced um, I guess the only upside of that is that there are a lot of old movies that like retroactively get uh, converted to like yeah. surround sound Remastered. I wouldn't want to watch yeah I wouldn't want to watch a movie where the sound has been fucked with I would you know I wouldn't want to watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre in mono because that's that's what it was <laughs> recorded in. You know, I don't I don't want to I don't want to hear the uh, illustrious sound design uh, that someone who works at Shout Factory or whatever thought would be cool on uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I just want to hear it the way it is. But yeah, I probably should watch more movies with headphones on. Yeah, it's fun, especially um, if it's late at night and you don't want to wake the neighbors. Oh yeah, sure. Um, I just wake the neighbors. Uh, that's generally my <laughs> move. Um, so, uh, real quick, uh, I was at the uh, Chicago uh, Critics Association Film Festival. Sorry, guys, don't remember the name. CCFF, um, Chicago C- Critics C- Film Festival. Okay, Chicago Critics Film Festival, um, put on by all of our friends who have been on the show before. Yay. I got to say hi to Steve Procobi and uh, Brian Tallarico. Um, and uh, I sadly was sick for a lot of it, so I only got to go one, one night. Um, but I did get to see the uh, debut, or the uh, I got to see uh, uh, um, They Came Together, which mm-hmm. is David Wayne's new movie. Um, I'm not excited I, at all. Yeah, I, I know you're you're I know you're mad at me for getting to see that with David Wayne in in theater. Just really, really, really delightfully being a total asshole to all of these yeah. <laughs> like state. Like in a funny way, like he's entertaining the audience with it. He's not just being a oh, jerk it's an act. to be a jerk. Yeah, no, exactly. But like, but pretty, but it's funny because uh, there's all these people, you know, comedy nerds and stuff. They're all just like fanboys of the state and stuff like that. And clearly, this is a reaction against that, where these people are just nervous to get up in, in front of a microphone and talk to him, <laughs> and he just fucking tears into all the questions. So that was cool. But the movie is really great. Um, I. Uh, am not a fan of Wet Hot American Summer. Mm. I, I love Paul Rudd. Yeah, I know. We, you, you, it's not a surprise. We've had this conversation a million times. Uh, I, I, I have Paul to Rudd react. I know. I, I love Amy Poehler in, in it. 
Um, there's you know a handful of scenes that are really funny. Uh, with you know David Hyde Pierce is really good in it, but like for the most part, it's just not my sense of humor. So you know, take that as you will. It's not really. It's probably closer to something like Walk Hard um, than Wet Hot American oh. Summer, where it's very blatantly playing with genre, um, at to the point where that'd be my chief complaint with it is that sometimes it's a little too obvious at pointing out like what it's doing. Um, but for them, but the other thing about this movie is it's super fucking fast paced. Um, like I missed a lot of jokes cause people were laughing over them. Uh, it's one of those movies. So even when there's moments where you're just like, I get it. You're doing that romantic comedy thing. You didn't have to point it out. Like you, you don't really have time to groan cause it's just, they're on to the next joke already. And, like, oh, I'm so happy to see Amy Poehler in UCB mode again. Because, like, Parks and Rec oh, is fine, yeah. but she's really... She, I think Amy Poehler is one of the funniest people ever. And it's always... And it's just been really hard to just only watch her on, like, SNL and Parks and Rec and other, like, you know, network-approved comedy, which is, like, they're, those are... SNL, not a good show, but, like, uh, Parks and Recreation, that's a good show. But it's also just... She has to be so sweet, and she has to be playing one character... And, you know, the thing about Amy Poehler is she can play any character. And, you know, I, that's that's the joy of watching UCB is seeing Amy Poehler pop up. as. God, like, I need to rewatch UCB. I, Everyone I needs to rewatch it. If you're too young to remember, um, Upright Citizens Brigade wasn't always just the place where all uh, your Earwolf podcasts were recorded. It was, Good point. It was a uh, show on Comedy Central, uh, a sketch comedy show. And it was sort of structured like Monty Python where things flew in the... Actually, it was kind of structured like a herald, uh, if you're familiar with uh, improv, where it would just be three storylines that sort of end up intermingling and, and tying together at the end. Um, you know, Del Close, who is the uh, sort of the comedy guru who invented the herald, he even does the opening uh, voiceover. That show is so fucking good. Um, um, it's really, really good, and Amy Poehler was always amazing in it. Uh, and it's I'm happy to see that uh, she's sort of back in form in this. Um, same with uh, you know Paul Rudd. Uh, Paul Rudd can be just cool, goofy, nice guy. Like I don't you know Paul like Paul Rudd in role models. I would say is Paul Rudd not necessarily playing to his strengths, and then Paul Rudd in this is definitely Paul Rudd playing to his strengths. Where just because of the nature of the movie is taking the piss out of sort of mainstream romantic comedies, mm-hmm. just like Paul Rudd's the best at being sarcastic, but he's able to be just everything he does in this movie is sarcastic because it's just a sarcastic gesture <laughs> towards the genre. Um, and ton of, you know, really funny comedy people in it. So that's a really good uh, movie. Uh, check it out. Um, and then I also saw real quick, uh, just, I saw the wind rises. Um, it came back to the, uh, Gene Siskel film center. Uh, and I was able to see it and it might, be my favorite Miyazaki. Ooh, it's, more it, than Spirited it, Away? It, it Spirited Away might be more, but it's really good. And it hmm. what's funny is it kind of actually fixes a lot of things I don't like about Miyazaki movies, which is uh, he as a storyteller, I find he, things just happen in his movies. They're not very they're not really well plotted. Um, it's just sort of a series of events that are loosely connected. Um, and this movie is really um, sort of fast and impressionistic and it just sort of 
goes through his life and then there's sort of a dream sequence and then you're already into the next part of this person's life. Uh, it, it, it being, it's a biopic about uh, a man who designed um, planes during World War II in Japan. I can't remember the man's name. But at, at any rate, so, it, you know, it sort of goes through his life and, and that actually ends up fixing, you know, that problem I have with Miyazaki because it's just so fast-paced and it's so, um, and it's so, uh, it, it, it feels a lot less loose. Um, and airless, and then also it ends up fixing the common sort of biopic problem, where it's just like a series of greatest hits, like uh, oh, and then there did this, and here's the part where Janis Joplin shows up, boop a doop, uh, where it's just there's no title cards, at no point do they tell you what year you're in. There's uh, you just have to sort of figure out using context clues, um, you know, at no point. Is there like a, a title card at the end or something that's like he went on to blankety blank? You know, um, it's just the the story is what it is, and um, I see a lot of people have complained about like the romantic subplot, and I was I was not happy when the romantic subplot started because it was just not what I was interested in. But it's actually really beautiful. It's it's a really touching romantic story um, because and, and if it happened in his life, then well, I mean, yeah, but why not include it? Because you don't want to just include everything that happened in a person's life, then it's not a movie. That's not a story. That's just a series of things. Um, which is again, that's the problem with biopics is they have to include it. But what ends up making the romance work is that um, uh, the character Jiro, uh, I think, is the name main character's name. Jiro is sort of a typical Miyazaki protagonist, where he's just sweet natured and just a very virtuous. <laughs> sort of almost uh, flawless, like, saint-like character. Um, and it's just sort of the struggles he goes through, but how he's a good person throughout the whole thing, which could be boring, but somehow in the context of a romantic subplot in which uh, his uh, partner is uh, dying of uh, of a illness of some sort, like, it ends up being really sweet um, and not... It it never turns into uh, Lamore, but it's but there's definitely it, for some reason it's really compelling in that context. It's not just it's not just oh yeah he fucked. Here's the person who he fucked. <laughs> like it's it's a really graceful, sweet uh, relationship they have, and sort of the the hardest struggle in the movie that he goes through. Um, is sort of trying to balance his love, you know, his work life and his love of aviation with his love of you can, you you don't have to worry about. <laughs> Sean, Sean is over here on my uh, squeaky ass uh, futon, trying not to make any good? noises. Is this a good volume? Uh, any yeah, is that, um, you're all right. Okay. At any rate, so like, <laughs> there's the you know he were there's like a scene you know where he's sitting there by her side as she's you know sick in bed and he's just holding her hand as he's doing calculations and it's just really Aww. small. It doesn't like try to elevate it into a huge thing. It's just there are really small moments of grace and sweetness in the movie that um, you know uh, are, I think are compelling and. Uh, really good, and it's sexual in a way that no Miyazaki movie has ever been. It's not, there's no, like, not a sex scene, but um, it's certainly just, there's no lust in any other Miyazaki movie, at least that I've seen. Besides, uh, Ponyo really wants that big fish. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's, that was probably a... No, Ponyo wants ham! 
That's what I remember. So, and um, the other thing is, I, I, just in examining my response to this and other Miyazaki movies, I think I've discovered something about myself, which is I really respond to fantasy more when it's an escape from the character's life as opposed to an escape from sort of the audience's life, which is a movie that takes place in a fantasy world is not as compelling to me as a person, a movie that takes place in the real world about a person who is dreaming. And so the dream sequences in this movie where he's sort of dreaming up these crazy airplanes and he's these these beautiful giant fields and he's flying around and he's um, having conversations with a famous Italian uh, aeronautics uh, engineer. Like those are all, I, I, I connected more to those than pretty much any other sort of fantastic sequence in other Miyazaki movies because um, I just sort of, uh, like it just felt it's more of an escape from sort of the actual bureaucracy and the pressures of designing airplanes in mm. World War II in Japan. And, um, and, and the, of course, he's a pacifist, and it's sort of, uh, you know, and the struggle of, you know, making these machines that will advance, you know, society, but uh, will, you know, and their understanding of science and, and uh, technology, but will also, you know, hurt so many people. And uh, so, like, those dream sequences are just amazing, and there's this weird thing that Miyazaki does where some of the sound effects from the airplanes and from, like, earthquakes and fires and stuff, they're treated human voices. So, like, sometimes airplane sound effects are just airplanes, but then sometimes airplane sound effects are, like, a human voice basically going... something like that, and it's treated, so it doesn't sound, like, completely ridiculous, but it is basically the sound design of the movie has a lot of uh, humanity in it, and it makes me... It, it, the, the way I sort of interpreted it was almost as if Miyazaki thinks that, you know, these achievements that mankind has done, the, you know, the airplanes and the trains and, and all of that sort of stuff, like, that is that has as much a spirit as, like, the forest in a to- Totoro or something. Like, these things have spirits in them the same way that nature does. Um, which I thought was a really interesting thing, and it, 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 it's not—it's it, not so prevalent that it's distracting, but uh, but it is—but it is there enough that it was sort of just added another interesting wrinkle to the movie. So I really, really love the wind rises. So there's not a lot um, of surreal elements because it's—it's not like Howl's Moving Castle or anything. Where right? Yeah. No. It takes there's no talking airplanes or anything. There are. There are there, there's one talking airplane. <laughs> All right, I'm on board then. No, there are some instances because uh, Jiro has a tendency to sort of go into his fantasies. There are some sort of implications that like things like care like again the uh, Italian aeronautics engineer that he talks to in his dreams. Like there's some of that in the real world too, but it's it easily like you could say that that's his mm-hmm. imagination or whatever. It's not just the, the the only thing is it's not just strictly segmented off into dream sequences. Also, I like that they are literal dreams, um, but you don't see him wake up every time. Like <laughs> it, eventually, it just the the movie just says there's gonna be you're gonna be you're gonna be existing in his dreams for a while, so uh, they're gonna happen. And they stop. They don't introduce them. They don't show him going to sleep. They'll, a scene will happen, and then a dream sequence will happen, and then the next scene will happen, and it'll be three years later. 
So, oh, nice. It, he doesn't wake up and go, has, oh, that was a weird dream. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to have him like wake up in a cold sweat every time. It was, as funny as it would be if they used the exact same clip every time. Like, <laughs> oh, it was all a dream. <laughs> every time. Who's the voice? Um, Do you see it dubbed? Or? I, I, yeah, well, we, we wanted to see it subtitled, but we ended up seeing it dubbed. So I will also say that the English language cast is very good. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the voice, and he is good in that he doesn't have a very distinctive voice, so it wasn't too distracting. Um, Ooh, Werner Martin Herzog, Short! Werner your Herzog. favorite! Werner Herzog plays a, a German engineer <laughs> um, who sort of just shows nice. up, and Werner Herzog's around, where he's just like, uh, yes, the, the troubles in Germany are terrible. They want to destroy everything, humanity. And <laughs> like, he's sort of, like I, I don't know how that sounds. In, in it, would be, it wouldn't surprise me if they just had Germ- Werner Herzog in, <laughs> do the Japanese one too. If that was a role written for Werner Herzog. Also, I hope their more roles are just written for Werner Herzog. Yeah, he, he in that Jack Reacher movie. Um, you know, Harmony Corinne's films. Yeah, he's in Harmony Corinne's films. He was in uh, the. Uh, uh, mis- not Mr. Lonely. Uh, he is Mr. Lonely. Mr. Lonely. That's it. okay. So that oh, yeah. is the one I was thinking of. Um, that's the one with like the Michael Jackson impersonator. Yeah, the, the impersonation. island of impersonators. Yeah. Um, he's good. He's so a, good. the lead, the lead character in this, he he's really passionate about his job, and that's something that I always love. That's probably my favorite parts of the Aviator was just like his enthusiasm for planes this is, and this. This actually, I have. I have Completely forgotten that the Aviator exists, um, <laughs> but this movie is a good response to the Aviator. Oh, whereas cool. a lot of things I don't like about the Aviator uh, are just sort of the typical biopic bullshit. Yeah, um, where it's Agreed. just like, where it's just like the reasons he's great and all of his and all of his problems all stem from this one moment in his childhood, and that's that wash rinse repeat for Ray and wash oh, rinse repeat, yeah. for, you know, walk the line and everything. It's just. You know, I expect more from Scorsese than that. Uh, I expect he, he'll do that every once in a while. He'll yeah, take, huh. not Clint Eastwood. Like it's not like he only <laughs> movies that like you know Clint Eastwood only makes movies so they'll get a nam- nominated for Academy Awards. Like that's a studio wants to have a certain number of nominations every year, so they go. Well, I guess we can make let Clint Eastwood make a movie. Val, <laughs> I am <laughs> like, I am never going to see J. Edgar. Like that's my but, stance. I'm like no. I will never, ever watch that movie. I will never watch Clint Eastwood's J. Edgar. I would have watched Todd Haynes' J. Edgar. If it was was just about uh, sort of the transvestitism, that would have... But, uh, yeah, no, not Clint Eastwood's. But you are excited about... You're excited about Jersey Boys. You're only human. Oh. I I only found out that movie exists last night. (laughs) Yeah, I I saw the trailer, and I was like, what... (laughs) He's <laughs> making a Jersey Boys movie, and it's oh, like, God. by the way, it'll be my aunt's favorite. <laughs> That's where he's at now. It'll be my aunt's favorite movie. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, prolific directors uh, who were once great, um, actually, I, do, I haven't seen many latter day Vin Vendors movies. I shouldn't say that, but Vin Vendors, Jim. That's the director of the episode, right? Yeah. Are you excited? <laughs> Are you excited? You have no idea how excited I am. We're going to be talking about a uh, Tokyo Ga, and we're going to be talking about uh, the Scarlet Letter. So I'm excited. No, that's not true. I watched both of those. I watched I watched to- Scarlet Letter, and then uh, I watched the first 40 minutes of Tokyo Ga, and then I realized, oh, this is his home movies that he like sort of spun into a documentary, kind of. Hmm. Like I could I could not deal with Tokyo Ga. I love Tokyo. Yeah? yeah. Awesome. 
Awesome. Okay, this is going to be so, fun, uh, guys. So stay tuned after Let's this talk break. Vim Vendors. Oh, good. No. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Traveling by car on my aeroplane. Hanging out in a library. Quiet and alone. Trying to find a home. Maybe you should watch some defenders. I've just found an American friend. Heading out to Paris, Texas. Kings of the road. Far away, so close. Sounds like you're a fan of Vendors. Well, you'd like some Vendors if you don't mind slow-paced narratives. Like things of desire, million-dollar hotel, super city pin, yeah. He is great, yeah. Harry D. Stanton is amazing. Paris, Texas is the greatest movie. If I feel alone, I'm a-going home. Put on that film by Vim Vendors. Vim Vendors. Where to begin? Well, I read an interview with um, Vim Vendors talking about how um, a lot of American filmmakers are very precise when it comes to the screenplay and the storytelling process. Whereas he gets a lot of joy out of the spontaneity of the moment more than adhering to what's written on the page. He's very excited about uh, you know the road and space and landscapes and he sort of conspit he considers a map to be more of a blueprint to where the story goes and you know there was a brief time where I was really into photography and I always thought ooh maybe someday I'll travel a lot and you know take a lot of pictures and all that stuff and one of my biggest inspirations for that you know, like sort of hobby that I was contemplating was actually Vin Vendors because I just I feel so strongly about his aesthetics and I don't know if I can you know say that um, like storytelling is his strength and that's fine because I respond to so many other elements in his films and more often than than not I think even with uh, Paris Texas and Wings of Desire he goes into production without a finished script um, and, you know, I've read a couple of, you know, interviews and essays, and they always point to the fact that this style is very akin to French cinema. That's more about mood, atmosphere, and feeling rather than, you know, telling a cohesive story. And unlike someone like Lars von Trier, he actually finds a lot to admire about America and, you know, the films that have come from here. Um, and that's evidenced by the fact that his characters often sing along to a lot of uh, uh, pop music and certainly a lot of visual references to American films that he loves. Uh, you know, it, but his but his biggest influences, I think, were Truffaut and Ozu and um, a couple others, all of which we've yet to cover that I need to get familiar with. But for me, his movies captures this sense of displacement and dislocation. Um, and it's always gorgeously shot. His characters are isolated and often emotionally stunted, but when they find solace in like the open road, especially, or just traveling in general, 
change becomes part of their process and sometimes it leads to redemption and um I don't know. I just I respond emotionally to his movies more than most directors and I think I do like when I was growing up and you know taking trips with my parents and stuff, I was obsessed with like just staring. Well, that, obviously there's not a whole lot to do but stare out the window, but I was always admiring, you know, the winding country roads and fields and forests and all this stuff and you know, traveling is something I always enjoyed. But his, again, another filmmaker that I love his attention to detail, with whether it be like with coffee shops, hotels, jukeboxes, photo booths, like all these really interesting um, choices to accentuate throughout all of his films. And as most people know, Parasexus is my favorite movie of all time. And there's a lot of reasons that we can sort of touch on, touch on later because... Um, I mean, we def we definitely have to revisit a little bit because I know Patrick's review has changed a little bit since the Movie Club podcast. So I'm interested to talk to him a little bit more. But let's talk about our first film, The American Friend, which I just watched for the first time um, about a week ago, and it's based on a Patricia Highsmith novel, the same author responsible for Talented Mr. Ripley and Strangers on a Train, both film adaptations I happen to love. And clearly, again, we have a director who admires Hitchcock. Um, boy, and this 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 movie, I mean, I can easily point out, okay, it's slow. It's got some flaws. There are things about it that I questioned. But as with a, a lot of his work, I become in, kind of enraptured by it. Like, things progress very slowly, so it takes a lot of patience. But there are such incredible set pieces and, you know, particular two sequences involving trains, oddly enough, that I think is phenomenal. And some of his best work throughout his entire filmography. I was initially taken aback because, um, I think mostly just because of Talented Miss Ripley, I was expecting the focus to be on uh, Dennis Hopper's portrayal of, of Ripley. But we, Vendor sort of you know, subverts that by fo- focusing more on Zimmerman, which I know even um, Patricia Highsmith wasn't happy with at first. And Ripley's not necessarily in um, in the American Friend as uh, charismatic and sort of innovative with his you know schemes, which was fine because I I, I like the idea of Ripley not needing to be explained as a character for us to understand that he's just you know a lost soul and kind of a sociopath. It's really just a simple story about subtle manipulations and how it can destroy a friendship. And I really loved this movie. And again, I think it's got issues, but I was overlooking them the longer the film went on because I just, again, cinematically, um, in terms of form and aesthetics, I just love the way Vim Vendors tells a story visually. Sean? Your um, rebuttal. My rebuttal. <laughs> I mean, I definitely uh, agree on a lot of the same things. Uh, visually, I think it's uh, stunning, and I think it's uh, stunning in a way that definitely helps tell the story. Um, Robbie Moeller, who's his, uh, kind of his inf- yeah. like synonymous with early inventors, um, did the cinematography here, and just there's classic, iconic things like the green light and uh, mm-hmm. sometimes use of like filters and kind of like just the look of it, I think, is just so breathtaking. And I think it really helps kind of tell the story and kind of put you in that 
kind of puts you in the environment of the film in a really great way and kind of helps you. It's not necessarily manipulative in how it's shot, but it's definitely, I think, enhancing. Um, yeah. As far as American Friend, uh, story-wise, I think it's one of his stronger films because it's definitely... Um, you can kind of feel like kind of the burning fuse of the film, and especially I think there's certain things that a lot of Inventor's films don't have. Like um, there's always in the back of your mind the fact that he's sick, and there's this constant, you know, when when's that going to happen? Because it could be any minute, and he's getting constantly misleading. He's constantly misled from doctors mm-hmm. and people saying he's going to die, getting letters that aren't true, getting, you know, like going to doctors that fake results. You know, just that constant in the back of your mind, is he going to die, I think is just kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat. And I think that's an interesting thing to kind of add to the thriller. Instead of just being a guy making bad decisions who is going to die, it's a guy who's making bad decisions who could die at any moment or it could be fine or, like, just that constant, like, it's like another way of misdirection, I think, is, uh, definitely helps story-wise because, as you said, Vim Vendors isn't, isn't as strong with story, but I think that's very intentional. I think a lot of his films, he means to be experiential, especially when we're going to talk later about Wings of Desire. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the most like perfect examples of just someone experiencing life and yeah. kind of not knowing how to interpret it until later. And I don't know. I love I love American Friend. I love how Tom Ripley is because I um I've never read the books that they're based on pretty popular series. I've, I'd seen the movie, Talented Mr. Ripley, and apparently that's a kind of a gross misrepresentation of Tom Ripley. Like, he's not even... Because uh, when I saw this the first time, I expected him... I don't know why it's such a big thing, but I expect him to be, like, this weird kind of homosexual thing. And then when, the, when he, like, wants to help him and befriend him, I was like, is there more to it than this? I was, like, looking for subtext the first time because it was right after I saw Talented Mr. Ripley. It's I I the, the moment where he breaks some food, uh, when he's hiding, he says, "I'm always thinking of you." Like it's a little. I, I think that was maybe like the only sort of. See, I think it's also he's like a very weirdly thoughtful person. Like there's like there's a mo- there's a line that really sticks with me. That's just like weird. Where um towards the end of the movie, when there's like the guys coming to the house, and he grabs the gun, and he's like. Let's try not to shoot it. I don't want the neighbors to hear. Right. And it's just like this weird... Cause, well, I, I think like, that's, that's, you don't want the neighbors to hear because then they're going to call police. But so. it's also like the, the tone in which yeah. he says it is like, is it like a, we can't let the neighbors hear. It's yeah. almost like a, like, I don't want to disturb the neighbors. It's like a, like, and then there's like the way that like he switches in front of the kid when the kid's there and he's like surprisingly friendly and mm-hmm. funny and like, and then just... I, he almost has like hurt feelings at the end of the film. Like I just, I think he's such a, like a dynamic character, Tom Ripley, and putting him more in the background, I think, really kind of lets it like simmer in the back of your mind. Also, like, what's this guy doing? Because yeah. when it cuts back to him, and he's like drinking by himself, like at taking this weird, selfies on a pool table. Yeah, just like, oh, just, like yeah. this guy, I love like that. this guy has no clue who he is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I viewed it as a, as attraction. Um, Partly, I, I'm probably just, in, again, influenced by The Talented Mr. Ripley, which is right. a movie I saw th- for the first time this year and I really like a lot. Um, but I think there is... Uh, I think it's... I, I I wouldn't use the word thoughtful necessarily because what he does to get uh, 
to get the uh, framer in this mess in the first place is very thoughtless. <laughs> it's very not considerate, which is just this guy. This guy snubbed me, so I'm going to I'm yeah. going to get him involved with this an assassination plot. Like, but I I think he genuinely feels terrible about that. Yeah. But I think that's only after I think he goes that first time he's getting his picture framed and he's trying to suss him out. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. which that that happens after the scene where he suggests right. I'm trying because I I'm trying to keep this straight in my head, but, but it's the that's after he has already suggested to his gangster friend. That yeah. This yeah. Guy's done. Oh so, no, that's before because during that scene he's playing with that picture. That's okay. the smiling frowning face. Okay. But I think you can see. Like, Vimetters does so much, but the visual of just him being so taken with this little yeah. tiny toy, it's, like, so intrigued and also kind of, like, like it's this little thing, and normally it's, like, an almost an aside, but the fact that he just can't shake the kind of enjoyment he's getting out of this is, like, just such a great visual kind of seed planted of, like, how he just can't shake how he treated this guy. So, yeah, if, if, if Matt Damon in Talented Mr. Ripley is sort of all about the um, the insane sort of construction of lies that this character has to build to sort of um, hide up the fact that he's sort of a blank slate, like, I think what uh, Dennis Hopper's sort of portrayal is sort of emphasizes the instability, which is <laughs> there's just something inherently unstable about Dennis Hopper yeah. whenever yeah. he's on and I mean, it's the same thing that makes him so scary in the scene of Blue Velvet where they're driving around and stuff is sort of the makes him so compelling in this movie, which is like, yeah, he can go into that childlike mode, but he's also very threatening when the gangster's breaking into his house. Oh, yeah. Um, or just kind of ruthless with the guys in the cars that he's just like beating yeah. and jumping. And, yeah, but I, I definitely also think that the film is very much a Tom Ripley that's 15, 20 years later. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, where he's younger and he's conniving and he kind of almost doesn't, like, realize the consequence. He's, like, very selfish. And I think it's 15, 20 years later when he's, like, actively growing or trying to grow and deal with, like, the way in which he manipulates. Yeah, I, I, I have to say again, I haven't read the books either. So I couldn't say whether he's miscast or well cast or whatever, but I think he's good in this movie. So I would say he's well cast for the movie yeah. that they're making. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this movie's atmosphere. I think, like, I really like this movie just because it's, it's a, you know, it's a thriller with some really amazing scenes. That first assassination scene is incredible. Like, just one of the most, and certainly that level of tension, I would never have expected the inventors to be able to generate. It just seems so, um, the opposite of what I consider Vim Vendor's style to be in a strength, but the tension and, uh, the the fear they, like, there's a man who's not aware he's going to have uh, someone point a gun at him and kill him mm-hmm. and the person you're scared for is the guy with the gun <laughs> oh yeah it's, and that's I think that's the thing is those scenes are so intense and people like you just said you're surprised he's almost able to pull it off mm-hmm. but I think what's fascinating about Vin Vendors is he's able to pull off a lot of things latter films somewhat excluded but especially Paris, Texas, jumps stylistically from a lot of different things, a lot of different feels, like scenes in the beginning play completely different scenes at the end. I think he's kind of, in a lot of ways, at least kind of just a total like master of knowing film, so he's able to kind of put it there, and what he chooses is more slower, kind of thoughtful, deliberate pace. But yeah. what I love about those scenes is then you're like, 
Well, he's also able to execute a pretty good Hitchcock, like, kind of train assassination, and it's like, it's almost like you're kind of like, this guy isn't just a one-trick pony of wide, long takes and kind of, like... And it is, and it is, if if you want to go, like, break it down, it is less of a Hitchcockian, Spielberg, like, tightly, like, edited, like, the thing that both assassination scenes, what makes them so distinctive is how sloppy they oh, are. Oh, they're so mm-hmm. it's not, It's not, they're not like well-tuned, perfectly constructed machines of tension where it's like, and then at that exact moment, that's when you find out this is happening. Oh, yeah. It's sort of more this weird, um, almost in, in the case of this film, I think it's <clears throat> more potent than it would have been the other way around. It's sort of this ambiguity that's terrifying. It's just like, wait, what is he... Did he miss it? Did he, is he not going to be able to kill the guy now because they got on a different train? And like how you brought up, you're always worried for the killers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that, yeah. that that ambiguity, like, like oh my, God. it's it's it. Or, I mean, the other thing I like about this movie is it reminded me of uh, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, which is my favorite John Cassavetes movie. And the thing about that movie is like, whole time you're like, wait a second, wait, what is the plan? How is he gonna, even going to do this? And that's how I felt when I was watching the first assassination scene. Where I was, wait, wait. Is he gonna now? Oh, so did he miss his? Oh, oh, like, and then the whole time, like, the longer he doesn't do it, the more scared you are for him that he's oh, gonna yeah. fuck up. And I think that sort of ambiguous terror would be better than like a really well tightly constructed thriller sequence yeah. in which, like, oh, and then he's spotted by that girl, and then he has to distract her. This yeah, year, like, yeah, he's the opposite of. And there's certain things about it, like, um, that kind of heighten it. Like in the first scene there's the guy, the kind of guy that spots it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, he's like kind of like signaling him for him to do it. And then like, he even loses that guy. So it's almost like he just like can't contain, he can't even contain the guy that knows he's doing it. <laughs> yeah. And then I, what I love is after that, when he's going to do the second hit, the Frenchman is like, we're going to do it on a train again, you know, to repeat the success. Like the first time went so successful. <laughs> it's like the first time he like shoots him on an up escalator runs back down and runs of past every security yeah. cameras is just going monitor, monitor. and it's like you're just thinking like it went horrible and now he's got to take out two guys yeah. on a moving train and somehow dispose of the bodies like it's it's just the way that they say it is just like and because it's so and I mean the film at whole on the whole works the same way where it's not a tightly paced thing it's very loose and atmospheric and mm-hmm. to the well, I mean I have to I have to admit I think um, one of the things I don't like about the movie is it's really hard to follow. I had to, the first 15 minutes, I had to stop. I looked up the synopsis of like, I looked up like the first two paragraphs of the synopsis on Wikipedia to just know what was going on. And then I went back and I had to watch it. Like, I couldn't figure out what Ripley was doing at the auction. I couldn't figure out exactly, I I couldn't figure out from that first scene that they were um, counterfeiting paintings. Like, well, I don't think you're supposed to. I think it's like almost like, it's very much representative of the whole film of scenes where people are doing things and you kind of think they should know what they're doing, but they don't. You know what I mean? So it's like you know at that scene when yeah. they're doing the auctioning, you know that something isn't right, but you don't know what it is. Yeah, like the like, whole yeah. yeah, the whole first movie has this very ominous kind of noirish kind of music yeah. playing, and I and I was like, I know it's playing, but I don't know what 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 part of this is ominous. Yeah. Film that def- like, and also the first scene is almost designed to you think that he's a painter that says he's died to sell famous lost paintings. Yeah, yeah. And I love that then it twists that he's no, 
he's painting for a guy that's supposed to be dead, and he's just a counterfeiter. Yeah, right. And then just, like, the shades of blue, and it's like, there's, you're like, I love the thought of there's tension, and you feel it, but you don't know why. Yeah. And yeah, it's just like, ambiguity again. Yeah. I think I, think I, really- I think I needed, I, I think just personally, I needed a little more. I needed to just be caught up to speed to have that tension play out. Otherwise, I was just, I was a little too confused. It's but, weird that you, you know, brought up killing me. of a Chinese bookie, though, because I mentioned that in my review. And, uh, like, it's not nearly the masterpiece that I think killing of a Chinese bookie is. But I got similar feelings of, wow, I've never seen this done this way before. Even though, yeah, we got all the elements of of a noir or Hitchcock and the score is sort of trying to convey how you should be feeling, but you're not sure why. And I kind of like that experience. It's- yeah, well, I mean, the thing about both, those, both these movies is uh, that they're thrillers that are not really concerned with the plot, which is the yeah. opposite of most thrillers, they're concerned with the characters, and they're totally character-driven, and they're very, you know, very uh, melancholy, and they're and somber, and there's a sense of doom, you know, quite literally uh, in this movie, and more figuratively in Killing of a Chinese Bookie, that like hanging over both the main characters the whole time. So, um, I mean, there are, there are connections to be made, but they're very different films too. Uh, oh sure, the you know this this movie is more you know just straightforward than it doesn't have sort of the flights of fancy that Killing a Chinese Bookie has, but I mean um, I love the locations I love uh, I love the French and sort of German locations for a movie like this. Um, I haven't seen a lot of neo noir that takes place in Europe. Most of the neo noir I've seen takes place in you know either New York or a small town like Blood Simple or something like that. So that was I liked that. Uh, and the environments, and of course, Vin Vendors likes environments, so yeah. he shoots them very well. A lot of things I read about it, and I didn't get it on a first watch, but <clears throat> probably because I tried to look at it through a more straightforward lens instead of seeking out subtext. Um, and maybe that's just because kind of how it presents itself. I was like, I was sort of, you know, adjusting my expectations as it went along because you know I am expecting it to be. You know, plot driven, but then I'm like, wait a minute, no, this is vendors. I should know better. But the thing that a lot of people were picking up on is this um, sort of troubled relationship vendors has with his his homeland, uh, Germany, and like he's sort of doing you know a commentary. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but that's not something we can sort of parse. But I'm just. Wondering if like like some of the re- reviews and essays are like saying this movie is really about Americans clashing with you know European culture and whatnot, um, and that's not something I necessarily honed in on. Which I guess it could just just be a subjective interpretation of it, but um, I think that's an interesting read in terms of like you know an, an American and a German building this friendship and then ultimately. Uh, dissolving. It's probably a theme that would speak more to someone who's more familiar, like someone who lives in Europe. Like I, as someone yeah. who has not been in Europe, uh, I, I was I, had, I took a trip to Ireland once when I was like fourteen. Like, uh, and so I, I that's certainly not something I picked up on, but it probably. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely think it's there. I mean, when you name the film an American friend, right? Clearly, yeah, sure, there's sure. definitely political. Or, uh, apparently that was like Dennis Hopper's suggestion. 
they went through a lot of title. Yeah, because I think the original title of the book is uh, Tom Ripley's Game. Or yeah, Ripley's Game, and then it was uh, Framed, <laughs> which framed. is not a good title, but framed. that was Jim Bender's idea. <laughs> Makes it sound more like an action comedy or something like that. But uh, and yeah, I think it was Dennis Hopper who suggested the American Friend. Um, I like all the directors in this too. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nicholas Ray love- is awesome. Nicholas Ray is awesome. I love the appearance of uh, Samuel Fuller. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, certainly the fact that he's American, he's wearing a fucking cowboy hat. Oh, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, he, long he hair does and not cowboy fit hat. there. Um, and when they cut to sort of the New Jersey gangster or whatever, you know, like answering the phone, fu- like, it's definitely sort of this idea. And it's also, you know, uh, Formally, it's like a very American-influenced kind of film, but with the atmosphere of a you know a more of a European kind of film. So there's that tension too. But as far as like specifically what Germany and America were going through at that time, or what America meant in that at that period of time to Europe, I couldn't speak to it. Yeah, I think it's interesting because this is sort of I mean not necessarily, not not nearly as prevalent in something like Paris. Texas, and I think it's something that you're not necessarily a fan of, Patrick, is the sort of um, existential self-documentation, almost, I don't want to say, you know, kind of simplified, but just, you know, I I actually think it's really cool when Dennis Hopper, you know, sort of to highlight his loneliness and isolation to talk into a tape recorder and say things like, I know less and less about who I am, you know? Do you, do you think it's... Like, you think normally it's like cool those things, things drive me crazy. Are you saying you think it's a cool thing to do or, like, a cool thing in the movie? Because I, like, uh, I like it in the movie. I like it in the movie. I, it's not necessarily... I, what I like about it in the movie is it's kind of... It's kind of a sign... It's kind of an interesting way to signal what a troubled character he is and what yeah. a, and what a lost person he is, and what a you know he's he's just sort of water, and he just sort of takes the form of whatever containers he decides to put himself into, and like I think in the in the in the framer, like he finds someone that he can sort of dedicate himself to, and he finds sort of a purpose. Um, like clearly, this is someone I did wrong, and then now suddenly my life has a purpose. Now suddenly I. <clears throat> my purpose is to set this right and to make things right for this person. And mm-hmm. that's, and I don't I, I personally did see uh, a little attraction um, there, especially the, at the end, sort of, it, it felt like he was leaving a lover behind kind of, uh, not that they were lovers, but like that's sort of the yeah. vibe I got from the end at the beach um, when he's sort of wishing him well and telling him to be careful. It didn't seem platonic to me, but that's just me. Yeah. The look on Dennis Hopper's face is, I, I think that's just me. Dennis Hopper. <laughs> I mean, you cast because Dennis Hopper. for the talented Mr. Ripley, the movie, they added the majority of the homosexual tension. It, that's not in the books. There, I, there's, there's a slight thing, but in the books, later on, he's actually married to a woman, mm-hmm. and, like, there's no homosexual undertones. Yeah, that, again, yeah, it could, it could just be me um, putting that upon because of talented Mr. Ripley, but uh, it fit. <laughs> <laughs> And I guess that's the advantage of casting someone like Dennis Hopper is there's always going to be weird... Uh, he's a flirt. Yeah. He's, a, <laughs> he's so flirty. Well, I mean, look at Apocalypse now. He's got a total crush. Yeah, yeah. There's the, the unspoken thing between him and the uh, decapitated head. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, I, I don't uh, know. It's like there's there's things about 
some of Vender's films that would normally drive me crazy. Like, just sort of, um, you know, hammering home, or at least, like, speaking to its audience almost directly the themes or what the characters are going through, or the fact that, you know, an American friend, uh, you know, um, Jonathan is singing the kinks, there's too much on my mind. Like, just... Yeah, that, that sort of the music thing is, number one, the character's actually listening to it, and that's a separate thing. That's a thing people do. I think there's a yeah. difference between, like... Sometimes people listen to sad music when they're sad, you know, and that's a fine thing to observe. And But, like, it, it's different than if it was just, like, a huge, like, song, like, needle drop right in the middle there. And, like, it, it was a whole sequence where all the lyrics were staying the themes. The thing I liked about American Friend was, unlike a lot of Vin Vendor's movies, it didn't have a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, you could I, certainly say that um, about some of the dialogue in Paris, Texas, and obviously Wings of Desire is such a different form that um, that sort of stuff uh, may or may not bother bother me. Uh, mm-hmm. Jim wanted me to keep it a secret, what I, how I feel about Wings <laughs> of Desire, so I'm trying not to spoil that for you. But, um, but I know you weren't too crazy but about... But this movie, um, I don't think there's all that much of that. Like, Alice for example, in the Cities. I watched Alice in the Cities, I yeah. tried to watch, and then 15 minutes in... Just the fact that two strangers, their first real conversation with each other, like she's just like, that's why you have that Polaroid camera, because you're trying to examine. Like, what are you talking about? You don't know who this person is, but they're just like speaking philosophies. Like, and then the next scene, the cab driver's even like, in this city, you can lose time. Like, I, I, I love, love that. that. Yeah. <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that, like, I don't, I like, um, I know what you're saying, like, whenever I would want to write or make something. I would be like, oh, I can't do that. Yeah, yeah. But there's something about, like, um, and honestly, sometimes when you watch a film that's set 30 years or 40 shot 40 years ago, mm-hmm. you kind of, it's like, that was more original back then. You know what I mean? There wasn't, like, the Sunday sure. and skies and cars talking and just, like, instantly, like, it wasn't bad writing then. It was more just, like, that was an, that was it a was some, it was, way to express. Yeah, they were exploring something. Yeah. They yeah. were trying to experiment with... It doesn't know. feel It's unfortunate forced. that now it's kind of been diluted by, like... Um, well, I mean, you can say the same thing about the score in Paris, Texas. Apparently that was, like, not a cliche at the time to have, like, sort of slide guitar... Like, yeah. language slide guitar mm-hmm. over Western scenes. Like, that was sort of the first movie to really do that. But then after that, anytime there's any dusty old saloon where people are immobile. Oh, yeah. The first shot is... Wah, wah, yeah, because, I mean, you, look at, like, you listen to classic westerns, and they're, they don't sound anything like No, that. no, classic westerns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, I think Vin Vendors was definitely ahead of his time, and some of the stuff hasn't aged as well because... He got copied. It's been watched by a lot of people yeah. and copied in, in bad ways, especially um, the road trip form. Sure. Like, there's certain things that just... Like, we're never in movies that he incorporated that are now, like, just, like, eye-rolling. Yeah, I mean, and that's the sort of thing I can appreciate and accept more than, like, that won't make me enjoy Alice in the Cities. I, yeah. I, I'm not going to say Alice in the Cities is a shitty movie because of it, but I will just say, like, that's, it's just not the sort of thing I enjoy generally. But, I um, dug it. I just, I just feel like he's very earnest, you know? And like, oh, yeah, certainly. Totally that certainly, <clears throat> I mean, that certainly takes a lot of, <laughs> the edge off of his sort of philosophizing is he's not Michael Haneking. He's not pointing, wagging his finger at the audience. He's yeah. the characters who are earnestly trying to explore. I yeah. mean, all his t- characters are inquisitive. Yeah, I mean, that's the same he's as genuinely. I mean, that's that's yeah, that's the same with Bergman. Like Bergman's characters do the same thing, and it's not irritating because 
they're at that point in their lives where they're that's what they're doing, and it's not they're not trying to uh, it's not just trying to challenge the audience or something like that. It's it feels more personal. And going back to you know just the last episode with Richard Linkletter, like his characters do that constantly. Well, that was the funny thing is Richard Linkletter is probably the most naturalistic um, of all the people. Like Bergman will get into. You know, and and vendors will get into big things where two people are having big conversations and they're speaking about big ideas. Whereas Lingletter is always interested in the way people relate to yeah. these specifically. <laughs> like, and that's it was funny watching some Vin Vendors movies after watching, uh, you know, the before movies, which are so naturalistic and so just like people. They're all like all Lingletter's movies are people giving their philosophy, but it's never. <laughs> in a way that sounds like a, a philosophy class, it always just sounds like the way people talk. Yeah, it's because it's like those; these are the kind of people that sit around and talk like this, right? And which I think is an important distinction. Yeah, because Ben Benders isn't trying to do naturalistic. Alice no, in the City is a, not a naturalistic a movie. Paris, Texas is not a naturalistic movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, there, he does some films. I think like uh, Kings of the Road is a naturalistic. Yeah, in terms of, I not I didn't get a chance to see that yeah. one, but um. But it's just, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. It's again, it's just not a thing I I respond to very much, as opposed to a thing I think is bad. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else you want to say, Jim? Uh, not not so much. I just uh, I was American pleasantly friend? surprised. I mean, like we mentioned too, is just you know I didn't know he could pull off this sort of suspense and tension and yeah and and make it very. Uh, almost documentary-like in his approach. And he, he definitely does that throughout his career. But sometimes he gets almost marred in uh, genre. And I think I, – I, I did not get through until, until the end of the world because there was like this weird self-awareness about being a science fiction movie or at least – here we go again with a road picture and, you know, characters a little, you know, exper- it's, it's just seemed like he was touching upon the same themes in a way that had been done in movies that I felt more strongly about. But with that said, apparently there's a five hour version of this movie, of which what? is interesting. Of, uh, uh, no, of until the end uh, of the world, until the end of the world. Yeah. Um, I started okay, watching. Yeah, I was going to say, cause that's, that's the only version I've seen is the five hour. Oh, Wow. And let's talk about I, that I, one I, towards I, the end. I'm curious about it. Yeah, sure. Cool. Well, Patrick, um, I think we can move on if everyone else right. is cool with that. Cool. So, um, I don't. I didn't get a chance to look up the uh, history of the vendors, so I'm not going to give a history lesson. But I will say that uh, Wings of Desire is a movie that takes place in Berlin right before the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, and involves two angels um, sort of flying around the city. Um, and experiencing people's lives, experiencing their inner monologues, experiencing moments of pain and of happiness and of grace and of sadness and little ineffable things that, because they can't personally experience them, seem miraculous to them. Um, you know, such as taking your shoes off under the dinner table. Uh, and the movie is interesting because the dialogue, most of the spoken words in the movie, I'd say, were, are probably different people's inner monologues, different citizens of Berlin's inner monologues. And most of that is poetry, basically. Um, it's essentially poetry as dialogue, and he even employed the uh, several poets 
um, sort of to write different dialogue um, for the film. So uh, I have to say I love Wings of Desire. Um, there you go. There you go, Jim. Yeah. Uh, it is. It's all of the things that I don't like about other Vin Vendors movies in this context just sing beautifully. Um, you know, it still keeps me a bit of a distance because I, and this is sort of just my own thing, I'm really, I feel like I'm kind of poetry illiterate. Like, I just, often when I read poetry, I can't make heads or tails of what it's trying to say or meaning or anything. Sometimes it has phrases that I find interesting, and that's about all I can hope for. So a lot of this, especially, like, the last ten minutes of this movie were impenetrable to me. Um, I sort of... Oh, when they I mean, finally meet up, I bet. Yeah, yeah, that that whole long uh, monologue she has. Mm-hmm. Also, I should say, for some reason, my copy, the subtitles got out of sync. So Aww. there was like a 10-second delay in between what she was saying and when the hmm. subtitle would appear. So uh, that <laughs> certainly didn't help. Certainly, it's not. It wasn't like it was a conversation. It was a monologue, so I was still able to follow it, but you don't see her face as she's saying the words, so it, um, or at least you don't read the words as she's, you know, saying them, so it, certainly that was a distancing factor as well, but yeah, the whole last ten minutes or so I found kind of impenetrable. Um, just trying to follow what she was saying or what she meant, but the first, you know, hour or so is some of just the most breath, most breathtaking you know, filmmaking I've ever seen. I, the idea of the subjective camera being a god's eye view, um, you know, or in this case, the messengers of God angels eye view, was really interesting formal idea. It was. It's the sort of thing that once you've seen thousands of movies, you don't expect to necessarily um, be to- like see a movie that tells a story in a completely different way. You think you have a pretty firm grasp of how stories are told, and it was just one of those things that just exploded my mind. I'm like, <laughs> like, oh, fuck. Like, you're, he, it's flying around the whole city and some of these helicopter shots and the way they fade into each other, like, it feels like he had the biggest budget in the world. It feels like this was, had, it feels so connected and it feels so, um, every shot leads into the other that, yeah. like, it, it just, the sensation of flying around and through walls and into people's heads and experiencing a whole family as they're all in different rooms and all the different things they're thinking of and all that, like, the sensation was really visceral and physical. Um, and so it wasn't even just, like, an idea of the subjective cameras, the God's eye. Like, I, you feel it. And it's... And, like, the scene in the library is breathtaking. So, you know, like... Uh, and. It's you know it's very emotional movie for as philosophical as it is and as distancing sometimes as the poetry style it can be it's very emotional and you, I feel very connected to it. Um, Vim Benders I think has a thing about women's naked backs. There the the he has several, I've seen several movies now where the camera lingers on a, on a woman's naked back, um, and hmm. I like the and I I like that because I like the. Uh, because I like women's naked backs, and uh, he this, loves the curve. Yeah, like, mm. shoulders. I kind of, I think, I, with Vim Vendors as the uh, Russ Meyer of backs. <laughs> backs um, I can't remember which. Yeah, his back exploitation. Uh. <laughs> exactly. No, I like, I like it because there's a sensuality to the movie that isn't overtly sexual. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the whole movie is about longing. It's about yeah. these angels who 
can experience everything in a way that we can't, but they can't experience anything in the way that we can. They can't actually pick up an object, um, you know, and they can't affect the world. He says he doesn't want to have a kid. He doesn't want to plant a tree. He just wants to feed a cat like Marlo. Yeah. Like, they, their, their desires are very small until they, you know, and obviously once he becomes human, he realizes the world is so big he wants to experience it all. Um, and he's no longer so modest. Um, but so that sort of longing goes well with that sensuality. And I like that it's not just about sex. Like all the, it's about sort of all the physical sensations. Intimacy. Yeah. Intimacy. Yeah. Intimacy for sure. Cause they just want to be acknowledged. Yeah. But yeah. Also just, yeah. All of the physical things they mentioned that like that scene where he's whispering into the man who's in a car wreck, who's dying and he's, reminding the man as he goes all of the beautiful things in the world and as he walks away he's still thinking about them and that's such a fucking sad moment I love Wings of Desire I love this movie a lot even if there are parts of it I don't understand I am eager to watch it again to maybe get more of it what does our guest think um yeah I I absolutely love this movie um I feel like there's just there's there's lots of times where it goes very based in poetry and philosophical but there's just like a perfect moment that kind of sums it up for me of like kind of all of his longing and the payoff is when he gets uh when he first becomes human and he gets the suit of armor and it hits him in the head and he like looks at the blood and he smiles and then he tastes it and he's like blood it has a taste and he smiles and he just goes like it has a taste yeah. is this red it, yeah it's just like is it, yeah and just like thank that, god he like, stumbled on the most patient passerby yeah, and, it's like, <laughs> and it's like that guy symbolizes like everyone that he would run up because it would it would totally dilute the scene if he ran up to 20 different people exactly and asked is this, a, is this red is this green like what's coffee can I get coffee and it's just like this one guy perfectly segues in the transition and there's almost like there could it's almost so much that there's a possibility that that could just be like some sort of thing that happens because uh, Peter Falk later on says that the first guy he asked gives him $500 uh-huh. so it's like I, there's definitely something more to it but it also just perfectly kind of sums up this transition I thought Peter Falk was talking about like oh yeah I got ripped off from my suit of armor too the kindness of strangers he gets oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love. I, also, I love the implication that Peter Peter Falk, Falk is an a angel. fallen angel. <laughs> that is that is the sweetest. You thing. You have to love any movie where Peter Falk is a fallen angel playing himself. Yeah. Uh, oh man, that's I. I knew Peter Falk was in this. I didn't know he was playing himself. It's, yeah, that made me so happy. I hadn't rewatched it in a while, and I forgot how much he was in it. Yeah. And like, I remembered him on the plane in the beginning and towards the end, and then there was, like, a brief thing. But, I mean, he's, he's like, the third or fourth lead in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I just love that Peter Falk playing himself, like, <laughs> just people yelling, Columbo, and just, like, yeah. it was just, I don't know, it's just, like, it puts you in, like, just, like, a very Do you know thing. whose idea that was? Was that Peter Falk's? Claire Denise. Oh, yes, uh, that's right. I was going to say, Vin Venner's assistant good, director. Good, mm-hmm. good taste in assistant directors. She uh, suggested yes. to include She had, like, the, the best year ever. In, like, <laughs> 1984, she was, like, uh-huh. like, an assistant director on Paris, Texas, and Down by Law. Yeah. And it's, like, that's how she broke into the game. <laughs> that's so good. Just gold. 
You know, yeah, so I, I love Claire Denise. I enjoyed you guys' episode on Claire. Thank Denise. you. Oh, thank thanks. You. Yeah, we're 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 big fans. Uh, I watch the I watch the end of Bo Travail like at least once every two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> um, In a lot of ways, she feels like a progression on like certain themes and stuff. That that's true. Yeah. Her style is very different, but yeah. it is true. Yeah, the th- thematically. You know, I um I read talk about e- Wings of Desire. Ebert's great movies piece on Wings of Desire, and there was one epiphany. In particular, that summed up kind of why I love movies like this. And he said, uh, for me, this film is like music or a landscape. It clears up a space in my mind, and in that space I can consider questions. I was like, yeah. Right on, Ebert. This is a very meditative movie. Yes. It's a, it's yeah. a meditative... Unlike, uh, I don't know, House of the Devil. Metaf- Shut up. It's a meditative, <laughs> metaphysical exercise, and, you know, it, it's, just, it's just a movie that kind of creates a sense of mindfulness, and it allows me to be immersed in a world that kind of meshes with my introspective tendencies. It's like when you take a long road trip by yourself, and weird things and ideas and, you know, uh, existential ideas pop up in your head, and it's an experience unlike any other movie I'd ever seen. I saw this way like a long time ago, probably on VHS with my um, with my friend at the time, Jason, and after it was over, he said that I just watched my favorite movie. And it was uh, like, you know, one of those great experiences you have with somebody else that, you know, you, you feel like almost spiritual um, when you can share a love for the same thing and, uh, you know, it, it's just the, the sort of poetic meandering is really beautiful rather than unengaging. And I think, again, that ha- that comes down to uh, vendors being very sincere, very earnest, and it not coming across as hokey or sentimental. Now, I love the ideas and the presentation in this film so much that even when they were translated into a very spoon-fed, sentimental um, version with the Nicolas Cage Meg Ryan remake, I still felt a, a strong emotional response, even though, like, anyone who watches that movie can go, oh my god, this is so fucking manipulative. Like, the score and just certain changes they decided to make are actually not <laughs> not very good, but for some reason, like... That even even in a remake, it's probably just because like the idea of as as you know the idea of angels being sort of like these pillars of empathy and trying to connect with humanity that just resonates with me, man. <laughs> you know, like even in an, I don't know if I never saw like other movies about angels, but there's oh never going to be another one like Wings of Desire, that's for sure. So, so yeah, so all I knew about this movie was the premise and that it was remade as a romantic uh, film with uh, Meg Ryan and Nicolas Cage uh, with a really good Goo Doll soundtrack. And uh, <laughs> It's actually got a great score. I don't care what anyone says. Even if it's manipulative, I don't care. Um, is... And so I was expecting this to be a romance film, which it really isn't. Um, I was expecting it to be about an angel who leaves behind being an angel to fall in love with a woman, or really it's about an angel who falls in love with a woman. That's more and, the remake. As part of falling in love with humanity. Yeah, it's a much and, more simplified. Yeah, and it's <laughs> like, so is City of Angels a, 
Like, does he become human way earlier? It, it's weird. They have um, in City of Angels, they actually have the option of becoming visible, and he just decides, oh, like, what well, I, w- I really want to help Meg Ryan, who plays a doctor, deal with the grief of losing a patient. So he decides to become visible without, like, like never of tasting things or felt things. So he's constantly asking her, what does this feel like from your perspective? What does this taste like? And, um, like, they sort of, you know, he has, like, this childlike sense of wonder and um, naivete that kind of makes him endearing, even though it's still Nicolas Cage being kind of awkward at times. Uh, like I'd actually buy into not necessarily like, like the romantic element of the of their relationship, but just the curiosity that's sort of built. You know, like when you're first getting to know somebody, you know, and trying to understand what their perspective is. So I kind of like that aspect of the movie. But that that reminds me of another thing I love about this movie. Can you imagine how quickly the um, the dream would have would have burst? The, the the sort of, the sort of bubble you get in when you watch this movie would have burst if they like stop to explain what the rules of angels are. <laughs> like, they never ever give you any information about like oh so are they collecting this information and they're talking to each other like is this reports are they are they at work right now or are they just like oh how do you become a human is this a thing that's already happened yeah or, they don't even show the process no no it just happens yeah. and it's just like thank God that they don't fucking like, go into, like, well, you know what the what the rules of angels yeah, are. Yeah, you can only be an angel until the <laughs> clock strikes midnight. Yeah, and then... exactly. That just been horrific. Um, it has, like, uh, in so Zombieland or something, Jesse Eisenberg explaining the rules. They should have put the rules on the screen of being an angel in this movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> they, should have had, they should have had Tyler Durden explain the rules of angels. Um, I, I mean, even the introduction of color into the movie happens very subtly and matter-of-factly, and it just sort of expects you to pick up on the fact that it's the human's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, which, yeah, the, the, my first thought is, okay, so I, th- I think the color is when it's the human's point of view and not through the angels experiencing with the humans. And then later I'm like, okay, yes, okay, cool. Like, And it just, yeah. it just, it just, you know, it just accepts that you're smart enough and you can pick that up. It doesn't. It, and then when he's asking about colors, it's not set up previous with the with like, oh, I just wish we could see colors yeah. instead of all this black and white. Yeah. Like it just. Yeah. I also love it. It turns to color at the exact moment that you kind of wish the movie was in color. Oh you know yeah, the I mean? circus. Like she's like she's wearing a shimmering gown, like on these like gold things, like you know, spinning across the the sky, and it's like, then it turns there, and you're just like, yes, yeah. You know, it's like that exact moment when you. You kind of wish it was in color, and then it just goes there. Like, you know what I mean? It, they didn't waste it on, like, another moment of just, like, you know, they didn't, they kind of, that's, like, what, 20, 30 minutes into the movie. Yeah, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Color. It's, uh, yeah, that, that's oh. true. And I, and speaking of color, I love how saturated the color is. Oh, it's so and, vibrant. Yeah. And how the, how, the, how the black and white is shot, which is, like... Every I always had pictured this as a movie from the '60s, just because the few yeah. screen caps I had ever seen. Yeah, and the, they just look so classical. They don't look like a movie from the '80s at all. And, no, and especially with the dissolves and stuff, it's yeah. like a 1940s kind well, of. Well, that was apparently a, he used a cinematographer who was like 77 years old who shot La Belle and Lebet, uh, and mm-hmm. like it was filtered through like an old scarf or something. Like it had, it just had that sort of old kind of style Definitely. approach to it. 
There's a, um, a moment like at about an hour in where it sort of becomes really chaotic. Like the cinematography is just like shaky and jarring and like it's sort oh, of there's floating like around. Where he's getting – it sort of becomes a little too intense for him. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And then there are two moments involving live rock music that just feel awesome. Like it's just, just like very visceral and cathartic. I'm so excited that we get to play From Her to Eternity at the beginning of the show. Because uh, <laughs> I, I, I fucking love Nick Cave, so I don't know. Like, the, and I love for like a br- brief second we get to hear Nick Cave's inner thought. I'm not yeah, going to talk is... about a girl. I'm not going to talk about a girl. <laughs> this song is about a girl. <laughs> I, uh, this, this, this movie definitely makes me want to uh, go ahead and check out Nick Cage. Uh, Nick Cage. Cage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in in City of Angels, you this should. movie made me think. You know, what would make this movie better if it was uh, if it was American and had Meg Ryan in it. No, it makes me want to check out Nick Cage's music because I, I will defend a lot of City of Angels to the grave. I will. You don't have to. I really think it's good. Do. I don't think it's great. It's not a I... noble fight you're doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I uh yeah the library scene the mm-hmm. I am not decided on necessarily what the old man represents. The old man represents storytelling. Mm-hmm. And he's, I believe his character's name is Homer, or it's alluded to. Yeah, okay. And it, right. the, actually, to, I don't know if you want to touch it, but the very end of the movie with him, he's walking through um, a park um, that was bombed in World War II and totally decimated. It was like one of the most famous parts of Berlin, and it was totally destroyed. And he was an actor who was very big in the 20s and 30s, and he was banished and he had to leave Germany. So this is like this classic German actor playing this man who tells stories who kind of is coming back to Germany and is in a film after he was banished during World War II, walking through a park that was destroyed in World War II. And he's just like talking about how the things change and there's more stories to be told. And I'm sure, obviously, for us being... 21st century Americans, the emotional impact of ending on this man who was kicked out of Berlin and is now back there at this once famous park that is now like decimated and yeah. like, time has ravaged and this old man, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure if I was raised in Berlin, that scene would totally have that impact that like you're looking for. But as of now, it's kind of like a nebulous kind of. I, I mean, and I like that Vim Benders isn't afraid to be specific mm-hmm. like that and. I mean, Vin Vendor's obviously, he makes films that um, would play with international audience. Like, there's just so many different languages, and they take yeah. place so many different places. And he, he's one of the only, uh, you know, foreign directors who makes foreign films that take place in America. Like, yeah. like that's a really interesting sort of a, a, a thing. But, like, I like that he's not afraid to make something specific and about his country and... And even if that means that I don't get the benefit of, you know, the ending of the movie because I wasn't raised in Germany, like, good. Like, I'm glad that yeah, he and is I, willing that to do that. Yeah, and all about Berlin. And yeah, there's a, that was the other, there's a lot of it so in that like, movie that I'm sure I – there's a lot of nuance I'm sure I didn't even pick up on yeah. about the importance of the wall and stuff like that. It's a very um, – like, yeah, it's one of those things where you're like, this is emotional, but it's like – there's that disconnect, especially when watching a movie that came out in 1980. Six or seven. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I love the reason I think I love the library scene is I love that the angels sort of I it, and again this is not spoken this is just sort of what what it implied to me was like the angels idea of sort of humanity 
at their best is when is when they're basically doing what angels do, which is like when you read a book, what you're you know what you're doing is you're going into another person's head and you're you're experiencing another person's experiences and stuff like Ooh, that. And you're good, finding good out stuff, and that's and that's and like the humans at the library are basically what the angels like. Berlin is the library mm-hmm. to the angels, what the library is to the humans, and I like the idea like that's sort of humanity as, at its best is when you have that sort of um, inquisitive, curious nature, and you are willing to not overlook mm. the details, and you're willing to see the grace in small things and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. That's I also think what... that's when they find the humans start to go, yeah. that's oh, no, when they find the humans s- the most relatable. Yeah, like yeah thought exactly. exactly. The humans are like, you know, being inquisitive and learning about something that they didn't experience, which is the exact same thing as the angels. So then their thought process, I feel like, is the most attuned to the angels. That's why it's almost Absolutely. like this. It's like they're, the angels are reading over their shoulders and then listening to their thoughts to almost kind of, like, bounce ideas off. Almost to have a communication with someone without them knowing it, which is so fascinating. Ooh, maybe that's yeah. why I like podcasts so much. Sure. tapping into my... Sure. Well, I mean, well, we're basically doing God's work here. Oh, my God! Yeah. I'm, you guys are the angels, and I'm, like, the children that, like, know you <laughs> yeah. exist. Yeah, exactly. But, like... <laughs> Most of our listeners never get this chance to look at us and go, I know you're there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Was seeing how Morgan the Freeman? sausage is made right now, and, <laughs> and wow, it is hard to get. It's some, like the it's jungle. Hard, really. It's hard to get two people. It's hard get two people to say a director's name at the same <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah, right. But uh, that's probably why social media is so popular. We want to glimpse into the thoughts of each oh other. God, the, 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 the a modern remake of this <laughs> that is about social media would be the most depressing thing ever where all angels are just like Tweeting. fucking assholes they're just bored <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're just bored just like yeah they're just drifting along they're not paying attention to anyone they're just like cool picture cool picture <laughs> like good for you because no one reads anymore exactly yeah. their thought is like hot not yeah, that, that actually does, now that you mention it, Jim, that actually does add another kind of element of sadness to this movie. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it definitely feels like people were more inquisitive. <laughs> and also, I think, setting it in Berlin, right before the fall of the wall, I feel like that's when people were, like, thinking or asking the most questions, you know what yeah. I mean? It's like yeah, that moment exactly. right before sure. where they're, like, wondering why there hasn't been change, and they're, like, their curiosity is almost peaked. And, and certainly that yearning... Uh, that oh, defines yeah. sort of the angels, or certainly the main character angel, is is not is it's not a uh, subtle metaphor for sort of the wall and yeah, you know Germany wanted to be together again. Um, yeah, fucking love this movie. I can't wait to watch it again and like pick up on more stuff because I definitely think like this time through, I was sort of overwhelmed at the joy of watching it and sort of experiencing these things and stuff like that. And there's probably Probably a lot of the actual specifics of the dialogue was just sort of like, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really pick up on the yeah. nuances of... Yeah, especially like, with the storyteller. The, the, yeah. the, or the poem that keeps... Repeating. Oh, yeah. Well, no, the poem actually made sense to me because that's, you know, yeah. a, the, the idea of childlike curiosity and stuff is a big theme in this movie, but... And the loss of childlike curiosity. Exactly. Which I feel like is definitely also another metaphor towards the war. Mm-hmm. Like how the children mm-hmm. now have the opportunity to be inquisitive, but... The adults now lost that in their childhood. I mean, that's what I love about Peter Falk's character is, is Peter Falk's character. Well, who's that guy who plays again? Peter Falk. Yeah. Um, is he has that you know he has that joy of someone who knows how good he has it as now being a human being now that he's no longer an angel. But he's also like when he with his illustrations, it's almost like he's trying to capture that again. Like yeah, he's like just trying to 
he's trying to look at people the same way he used to, and I don't think he can anymore, and there's kind of a bit of a sadness to that as well. Also, that scene where he's sketching the woman, and you hear his thoughts, like, oh, this is no good, and then he cuts to her, and she's like, he better show it to me. (laughs) (laughs) He'll never have to show it to her. Yeah, he's like, but you'll never see. (laughs) (laughs) It's so great. Uh, and then just him talking about the extras. He's like, these are extras. Extra human. Extra human. Like, I've, I've been an extra in, like, several movies. Yeah. And it's just funny because you always get to that point when you see, like, the star of a mm-hmm. movie, and you're like, this guy doesn't even fucking know I exist. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 way back in the distance, it's just, like, some famous person, and you're just like, yep, I'm a peon to this guy. Well, that's, and that's also a good metaphor for the difference between, like, the thing about the angels is... What they experience every day is essentially... It's a film where everyone they run into is a main character and everything is connected. Yeah. Whereas, like, Peter Falk no longer being an angel, that's, like, people suddenly... You don't get inner access to your thoughts. Some people are just scenery. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, on, you know, that's that's the difference between being an angel. Is no one is scenery. Everyone has yeah. an interior monologue and an inner life. You have access to their most personal beliefs and desires. Yeah. You, you can't interact with them. Yeah. That's why I feel like, based on what little I heard of this remake, where you can switch back and forth, it seems yeah. like that constant sense of longing, which is like the majority of what the yeah. like the film is about in some ways, like is could be completely lost because it's like you yeah. switch over, eat a hot dog, come back, like yeah, <laughs> like, yeah that's true. Like, there's, how can you have longing when it is like, well, like if only I could? Oh, he still has to fall. Like, oh, that's what blood tastes like. Back, yeah, like. That's what blood tastes like. <laughs> I just imagine, like, he, the remake, Nicholas he turns a human. Yeah, no, no, in the remake, he turns human to, to taste the to the guy in the car accident's blood. He goes, hmm, okay, and then he goes and whispers. <laughs> <laughs> and he just basically looks like this crazed man who appears out of nowhere, dips his finger in this dying man's blood. And then, and then, and then, it's just, and then because it's, like, a, a Hollywood remake, at that point, there's some, like, Mexican immigrant who's like, El Diablo! <laughs> Moment. Yeah, in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's the wacky moment where it's just like, wink. <laughs> yeah, Nicholas Cage hamming it up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that sounds good. Okay, let's let's do it. Let's watch City of Angels. Um, is there anything else you guys want to add to City of Angels? Are you ready to move um, on to some other films? I guess one thing that we haven't really touched on that's an interesting aspect in terms of them being angels is how they can touch them and kind of change the course of. Their oh life. yeah, yeah, and how. Sometimes even they can't change the course of some people's lives, like the guy who's going to kill himself and then yeah. pleading with them. Like one of the most emotional scenes in the movie. It's an mm-hmm. interesting sort of um, balance between free will and fate, as far as like the presence of God, um, which is like God can affect things, but God or because again these the other yeah. I mean the other thing interesting about this movie is it's not particularly religious. And in fact, oh, they don't even act like angels the way you think of angels in the Bible. They're not messengers. They're just a higher being. They're right, not like, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, it uses specifically Christian imagery, but it doesn't use yeah. really Christian ideas of angels. But, um, yeah, like, it's it's this sort of idea where it's, they're sort of these, they're not omnipotent, obviously, but they are sort of, yeah, like you said, higher beings who can affect things, but they can't um, make up people's minds. They can't. Yeah, they can... They have like almost a invisible persuasiveness. Yeah. But they can't change fate. Yeah. Seemingly. And I like the idea that the people who need them most are everywhere and not just it's not just like they're in hospitals all the time. Yeah, the guy <laughs> in the train. And it's like living in a major city, yeah. I ride the train all the time. Yeah. It's like you always see that guy in the train. So it's just like those fascinating things. And then also in that scene as well, they do a good job of like 
poetic person, poetic person, poetic person. And there's a guy who's just like, I need to clean my shoes. Or he says like some sort of line and then just like, you know what I mean? Like it kind of, not everyone's on this. Something else I wanted to say real quick was the reason, one of the reasons the poetry as dialogue doesn't bother or bother me is it's not really dialogue. Yes. Yeah. Inner monologue. And yeah. I think when you think about it, like the way you think isn't in words always. Mm-hmm. You think in ideas and you, in images and words and this weird combination of thoughts. Your thoughts aren't just like, I should go to the store today. What store should I go to? I should go to Jewel. What should yeah. I get from Jewel today? Like, it's just sort of this, it's more vague than that. And the idea of poetry representing that um, makes perfect sense. I to do me. say to myself, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? Yeah. What are you, you going to have for dinner tonight? I don't know. I got to okay. wait until I, I, I don't want to, you know, shut down and just constantly <laughs> go in my own head while we're doing a podcast. Sure. That'd you be gotta way keep... uncool. All right. Because that would mean I was um, bored. But that's yeah, that suicide true. scene's really... That suicide scene is really moving. <laughs> yeah. And when the camera just kind of... When he jumps down... There, that's another thing, is when... Like, the flying... We talked about it earlier, but, like, when he kills himself, or tries to, mm-hmm. the angel, you know, and he swoops down and the camera just plunges, it's like, you just plunge right with it. It's a very effective... Yeah. Yeah. So those moments, like yeah, like Jim mentioned earlier, with where he's getting overwhelmed and stuff, those little subjective moments where maybe you just see like beautiful shots of like wings and stuff like that. Yeah. That really helps the kind of dreamy atmosphere and just the way it, how cohesive everything feels. Or yeah, it, the sensation is you're flying around Berlin. The sensation isn't like here's the cloud set and here's the set where this happens mm-hmm. and here's the special effects that link those two things. It just it just feels like a whole complete place. Yeah, I guess one last thing to add is I just because this kind of goes into vendors as a whole is I love how he's obsessed with just kind of stopping and pausing on like moments of wonder, uh-huh. like just like there's like especially like the circus in this film, like it's like it doesn't just show it like quickly, it shows like the good, the bad, it shows the whole event, it shows like that she's the star, you know what I mean? It's kind of like yeah. you're like oh this show is terrible, and then she gets up there and does her thing, and you're like but she is magnificent, yeah, and it's like her. <laughs> literally risen above it or like when he pauses at the Nick Cave show and it's like it, it's a pretty extended period of time for like what else kind of keeps going around but like it'll just like pause and let you soak in this moment of like people have like because in the audience it's a bunch of people having emotional responses so I feel like Benders does a really good job of allowing people to kind of be in that same kind of like you're almost like watching as well the event going on okay so one question, even though I already said that the best thing about this movie is it doesn't explain the rules of being an angel. One question, sort of, I guess, about your interpretation of this is there's, in Berlin, they're localized um, in Berlin, and there's the moment at the Nick Cave show where there's the Japanese girl, and her thoughts yeah. are in Japanese, and it's not subtitled. I was going to ask about that. Do you think that is to imply the angel can't read her thoughts because it's in a... Because she's but he he laughs. His language like he recognizes. He, yeah, he laughs. But what what do you think the? I think you're supposed to assume that kind of. They, I mean, they speak for the most part in their own languages, right? I mean, they also he understands speak English, it, but yeah. the same way a German yeah. you would know French and English and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think that's more just like almost like kind of a little beat about how they understand all languages. Oh, okay, so they do understand. I, yeah, because he acknowledges it with a laugh. Okay. So I think I think it's more just like maybe also showing someone who's explicitly like Japanese or you know and yeah. then just like 
them being like a eight and an English accent. You know what I mean? Like it's almost just like an artistic decision just to have it be. Yeah, I I, I interpret it as the opposite. Like he has a knowing laugh because he's like, oh, I don't always run into people who I can't read. <laughs> but it it felt like a it, it felt like a it's a it's a minor thing, but it was a sort of an interesting choice. Um, Jim, you have anything else to add? Or you want to move on? Well, um, I think it's a. I think he's made two other masterpieces, and I think we all know what the other one is: <laughs> Wings of Desire and the next one. I'd like to briefly touch on. Well, don't keep me in suspense. It is Paris, Texas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you there, Jim? You know, that's a movie... <laughs> Are you asleep? What's going on? Whenever I even just say the name of the movie, I just take a minute, you know, just like... A, it's good yeah. for radio. I know, right? <laughs> exactly. First rule of radio. Always leave a beat. Yeah. <laughs> First rule of radio. <laughs> like, you want to spot... You want to do, like, Vim Vendor's radio. You want to pause for a moment. And well, just sort of clearly, Wes Craven is, you know, writing my life right now. And, you know, it's a screenplay. And he inserts beats when he feels they're appropriate. Good. Yeah. Um, tell me about Paris, Texas, Jim. Why is I, 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 Paris, Texas is a movie that I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, but it, it has all these elements that I, such as beautiful, beautiful, beautiful cinematography, really captivating performance by Harry Dean Stanton, fucking mind-blowing, phenomenal ending scene. Like, it has all these elements that I understand why everyone loves it, but... What is it about you that makes this your personal favorite movie, Jim? The moment it was over, I said that's everything I've ever wanted in a movie. And in particular, the 20-minute monologue where they're finally addressing their past is probably the most emotional I've ever been uh, watching a movie. And... I actually re-listened to our movie club podcast because I was like, oh, I don't want to repeat the same things, blah, blah, blah. And the one thing Jay and I had in common is that it's very hard to articulate the kind of emotional response that, I, that this movie sort of creates. Um, I can certainly talk about the fact that I love that this is three different kinds of movies and they're all movies – all types of movies that I love, and yet they all just sort of flow together beautifully. Um, but the way it sort of builds, and I like, I think <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton is just unreal in this movie because he's, you know, he starts off suffering from post traumatic stress from, we don't know it at the beginning, but going back, it's, it's, it makes even more sense for him to be like almost shell-shocked from what he did and why he feels this need to ostracize himself and sort of roam the earth, basically. Um, I think it's an interesting movie to rewatch and replay in light of realizing why he is the way he is. But um, visually, it's I've never seen like cinematography this perfect to where I was like, I just want every single frame on my wall. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I feel like Robin Williams in one hour photo, only instead of pictures of a family, <laughs> I want to put every frame of this movie. Because like, even when just Dean Stockwell is, you know, filling up his gas tank, I'm just like, 
holy shit, look at the colors of the sky and how they're contrasted with the color, the fluorescent light from the gas station. It's like, I, and also, um, it's interesting because of, of, um, this, um, this, the main thrust of the film comes from Sam Shepard's personal life. And he wrote a series of stories and Vin Vendors just read one story in particular about a father and son and that image of them uh, walking outside of the the theme park from I I, just, I best remember it from Pee Wee's Big Adventure with the huge dinosaurs. It's it's been in a ton of movies. I'm sure it has, and that's um, I don't know. Like again, you know, there's the father and son bonding part of this movie that really gets to me. Um, but it it really comes down to the um the moment where both of their faces is their both of their faces come together in that um you know when he he's finally talking to her uh over the phone and has like they're able to connect but not physically um and they're both just revealing all this shit and i i don't know man like that 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 whole thing just really does something to me. And the very end is unbelievable. Like, I just, I get choked up, you know, just realizing, like... And I, and actually, I heard that Harry Dean Stanton was fucking pissed about the ending. Uh, it took him a long time to sort of come to terms with the idea of him not being reunited with the family. Like, you know... He, he clearly sort of came to terms and uh, just was able to confront all the shit that he did. But he didn't necessarily buy into, like, well, I, buy, I better leave again, and otherwise the same thing is going to happen. Which is an interesting read, because I actually think it was for the best, you know, in almost like a searcher's-like way of saying... Okay, I accomplished this thing that I've been needing to deal with, and I did, and now it's time for me to move on because I'm still lost, essentially. Um, I think it's mo- mostly because like the, it tells a simple interpersonal story, but yet it can be seen kind of as like a, both a love letter and kind of a critique of just Americana and the American landscape because of like how. There's desolation, and um, you know it sort of portrays this anti-hero in a way that I think very few movies that did in the past, because it's like he's struggling with his individuality and sort of fleeing away because of what he's done, and yet he's you know on a journey to try and reconnect, and he's so torn, um, and I think the ending is really resonant because of his choice. Like, it, it's kind of selfish, but it's kind of selfless at the same time. Like, I like how this movie walks the line and doesn't always call attention to it. I mean, there's just this minimalist and, like, um, brokenness to this movie that, um, you know, is not necessarily, like, instantly um Able to you're not instantly able to identify with it, but it's it's like this quiet observational feel to people that I don't know just works in every way, 
It's like this idea of slowly vanishing into the past and trying to kickstart yourself to get back into the present in order to not only deal with what you've done, but to help those that you've hurt. And maybe that's just like a personal feeling and not necessarily like something that the movie is actually aiming towards, but it's definitely the most personal you know, uh, movie experience I've ever had. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, good. Sean? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I second your feelings uh, that it's hard to articulate just because it's such a kind of grand film. Like, it, it, from the way it starts to the way it ends, it's such, like, a journey that it's almost hard to kind of pinpoint what exactly you love about it besides the whole ride, almost. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, I, I love every aspect of the film, and every part of it, I'm just swept up in it, and I know how it's going to end. I've seen it so many times, and just, like, but every time, I'm just, like, almost like that moment where you're just waiting and hoping that it doesn't come out the same way, even though you know the outcome, but it's like the perfect outcome. And it's just, it's very, it's hard to describe. It's just like a, it's almost like a, a very personal film that someone else has made that you can just like feel that it's a very personal film and it works on you. And it's like, you almost just feel like you're a part of something else. And yet the complete and antithesis of this movie exists by the same writer and director. It's so weird. Um, What's that movie? Don't Come Knocking. I hated it. I have not seen Don't Come I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Because it was essentially like a bad cover song of Paris, Uh, Texas. I was thinking the exact opposite. Like it was a music video style sci-fi action movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, it's just the same journey as the destination kind of idea, and um, everything is just feels off. Like, every performance feels stilted and wrong, and the dialogue is terrible. Um, I just I, I just don't know what, what happened. Like, I don't know if it was just a... a it, it feels like a project that did, did not come together in the same, like, organic fashion, or, like, they had something to convey... On a personal level, it's just, they said, hey, maybe lightning will strike twice, you know, let's try it again. It just it felt so weird to watch that movie with how much love I have for Paris, Texas. And I also just want to read more Sam Shepard stuff, too. I think, I think that I have that problem with a lot of latter Vim Vendors, that it feels like, like it, a bad cover, almost like it's a guy that you can tell if you watch some of his earlier films to you know, his middle work that's some of his most famous, and then it's just like, from there, I feel like it's a filmmaker that didn't exactly know where to go, and that's why some of his documentary stuff is his best, because it's like, almost like, he's discovering it and making it as it's an organic thing, but I almost, I feel like some of his films are like a great filmmaker that ran out of those ideas that made the other films as amazing as they were. Yeah, and he's he's rehashing them. But he still wants to make movies, you know, mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. like like documentaries, the ideas present themselves, the opportunities present themselves, and then I, he's still a great filmmaker, so he's able to kind of realize them and act on them, but like like Million Dollar Hotel and stuff like that, it just feels like like a, a half-baked idea that like when making it, he knew it, and the execution 
reflects that. Up. Real quick about Paris, Texas, the only thing I want to say is, for whatever reason, it doesn't really hypnotize me the same way. The only real actual thing I can point to and say I don't like this is I have a lot of trouble justifying the um, Harry Dean Stanton's character, the tra- Travis's character at the end of the movie with Travis's character at the beginning. Like, I get the whole uh, sort of PTSD, catatonic sort of state, but that, like, childish kind of state where he's like, oh, we got to have the same car and, like, and that like that sort of stuff. Like, that, I was... It's very odd to me. Like, it does. It seems... It doesn't seem like a logical progression of the character as I know it from the movie. Um, hmm. I have a lot... And, and I also just find that stuff way less interesting, like, the kind of quirky... Only once he's actually sort of becoming a father that that I really get super invested in his character. The you know he's interesting as because he, he has such a great face. Like when he's catatonic, I find that interesting. I, I think he's regressed to like you know almost like a child. I just I don't. I, I that's that's what I got out of it too. I just for whatever reason I don't buy it. Like it just doesn't seem like a thing that happens. Is you go from catatonic and then you have to reset your whole. And you have to be a child again, and then you act like silly childs. Like, see, I feel like he's always been a child. Yeah, like it's like even at the end, it's like him coming to terms with the fact that he's not ready to be a grown up. He's not ready to deal with the responsibilities of a child. That's an interesting. And treating every yeah, year. Like, so. I, I think, I mean, for one, like you don't know exactly what happens, but disappearing and kind of wandering off on your own while you have a child is is a pretty immature thing to do. Yeah, but it's... There's a difference between that level of immaturity and the... and sort of the, like, three-year-old in a man's body level of immaturity that he does in when they're driving back to L.A. And I find that kind of stuff is just kind of quirky and not necessarily interesting. Like, also, like, you know, like him cleaning everyone's shoes. Like, I didn't... I, didn't, I don't know what that's about, if that's about anything. It's just a thing that happens... There's just a few moments where I'm just like, wait, I'm just not that invested in the story. The other thing I should say is, other than Wings of Desire, I tend not to be super invested in uh, Vim Vendor's characters. Um, I, for whatever reason, I just find them very distancing, um, and I find it hard to uh, relate to them. Um, so, but so that's my. I think Paris, Texas is. Just wait Probably ten years master. and you'll have some more regrets in your life. <laughs> I then you'll be able to regrets in my life. <laughs> I just haven't gone catatonic and then and then turned into Rain Man. That's that's mostly what that stuff feels like to me when they're driving back to LA. It feels more like Rain Man than the rest of the movie. Yeah. And that's I'm not so into that. I mean, I like that I like that um what's his name? What's his brother's name? The Dean actor? Stockwell. I love that Dean Stockwell isn't fucking asshole. Like LA brother, I yeah. love that everyone in this movie are kind yeah, of yeah that he generally people. wants the best for the child yeah yeah and I and like I like that they didn't go that easy where it's like well of course Travis doesn't fit in man no one fits in his fucking pathetic like fake yeah. land of LA like <laughs> yeah. I, that's totally first time I watched it I totally what that was going like yeah it, it subverts it definitely and I, I mean think I, that's what makes it more interesting is yeah. that this guy struggles when he has a good life. Yeah. Like, when he has a support system that, you know what I mean? It's like, it could have very easily been, like, guy from Broken Home, and, like, even his wife, like, she has her reasonings. And right. she does love her child. You almost assume, like, she abandoned them. Like, it could have been a very different movie. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, so I, I'm not I don't have a grand defense about why this isn't a great movie. It's just not not my it's not one of my favorites. Um do you have another movie you wanted to bring up? Um yeah, I'd, I'd like to bring up uh, Kings of the Road. It's um it's a mid seventies film he made. Robbie Moeller shot that one as well. And it's basically for me it's like the quintessential road movie. And it's like um it starts it's a guy just driving and then he just crashes into a lake. There's another car there with a guy in it. He gets out of the gets out of the water and then kind of needs a ride, gets and then just a road trip, two guys as they go around Germany hmm. fixing projectors. And so he's just kind of along for the ride and it's it's about three hours long and it's just incredible. It's that's the like, only reason why I didn't get to it because it was so long. But I'm I'm gonna watch it. If soon. if you Jim, you said you liked kind of road trip films and kind of that kind of oh, that yeah. moment when you hit a contemplative moment on the open road, mm-hmm. and that's basically this for three hours. It's I don't know. I I just think it's incredible. Like uh, and there's also kind of true to vendors fashion. There's a part where they're fixing the projector for a school of children, and there's like they're behind the screen, so it's like a you know, backlit of them on... Okay, so it's like a shadow puppet yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, and then they, like, do a show for, like, ten minutes, and all the children are going crazy, and it's from the children. It's just, like, it's, you know, they run into people, and just the ending... I don't want to give too much away, but, like, it's just, it's just, like, if you watch it, you'll just feel like you went on an entire road trip in three hours. Like, I don't know, there's, there's certain things, like, vendors in his thought process, like, I know in his earlier films... I remember I read his book, and um, there's a part where he says that he got into a screening match at a screening of his, either his first or second film because there's like a 15-minute long shot where he was they went into a tunnel, mm-hmm. and it was just black, and then they it holds for like 10 minutes, and then they come out of the tunnel, and he, like the guy was like, cut that out, we couldn't see anything, and Bender's <laughs> had had a very big problem he like self-admitted with like cutting uh-huh. like yeah because he, he's like what are the what are the characters doing in that time frame like he's like like he, <laughs> he, like, yeah, if yeah. a character goes to bed and then it shows them in the morning like do they have a good night's sleep like did they toss and turn <laughs> so like it's like edit- he had editing anxiety yeah and like uh-huh. you can i think that's like very you can look at his films and see that and it's not in like a well, that guy needs a better editor. But it's like, I think that's an interesting way to approach a film. Yeah. Like, in Kings of the Road, there's a part where there's, like, a guy squatting behind a hill and defecating, just, like, like and, like, awkwardly pooping, and then, like, someone, like, goes and looks, and they're like, you done? And he's like, no, not yet. And then it, they just, like, he finishes, and then they continue on their road trip. And it's like, <laughs> that's and it's a, like yeah, yeah, you know how, a, like, I mean, every that's time... That's a quintessential example yeah. of, well, why don't they show the characters going to the bathroom? Yeah, like, it's like, yeah. people watch something like 24, and it's like, I follow that guy for 24 hours, and he never peed once. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, on a road trip, yeah. you poop uh, behind a hill. Yeah, and that that's true. It. So, it, I don't know, it's just like... My, my, my grandmother had that monogrammed onto a pillow. <laughs> yeah. On a road trip, you poop behind a hill. Yeah, and I don't know, it's something about that. It's just like, it's like, there's that moment where, like, it could be so self-indulgent and pretentious, but because it's just coming from this, like, genuine, inquisitive thing of, like, what do you do on a road trip? Mm-hmm. And, like, you can tell the films are made on the road from yeah, yeah. one point to the other in sequence, that it's just, like, it's very, like, it just draws me in, and just is very engrossing. 
Yeah, that's, I guess I could. I'm excited to see that for sure. I just yeah. the one thing I can say about a lot of his films is that pacing is kind of an issue sometimes. Like, I do get a little restless. Like, even just the beginning of you know Alice in the Cities. Like, are we going to get to some kind of you know interaction? And I know it's a slow build up, and I don't mind that in most movies. Um, I think I actually he, like he, that in Alice in the Cities. Yeah, that was, it was when they started talking. Was when I had that's, to check out. That's very French New Wave kind of. But um, also, I just you don't have to do a full review of this. But is until the end of the world worth the five hour investment? I mean, I I think so. I hmm. I genuinely love it. Okay. Um, but I I guess it's I've never seen the two hour long version. But it's just kind of one of the, in the same vein. It's a kind of a road trip, but it's like a world hopping film. And there's just, it's it's similar at points to Wings of Desire where there's just genuine kind of inquisitive character. This time it's through uh, a woman who is using her video camera constantly to record record little moments. So there's it's beautifully shot on film, but then it'll just cut to this like early '90s DV tape of just like people sure, like and consumer grade. Video. Yeah, but like it's done. I feel in a way that's like genuinely inquisitive and like. Like I just feel like there's a curiosity that flows throughout all his films. Yeah, that, definitely. That that kind of deflates it from being a gimmick. You know what I mean? Like it's a high concept futuristic chase movie, but it's a Vin Benders <laughs> futuristic world hopping chase movie yeah. where like they'll just like shoot off to Australia and like talk to an Aborigine tribesman who like is repairing planes and then like it might as well be something in, like, 1930, and then they'll go to some crazy thing. And, I don't know, I think there's really good performances in it. Sam Neill's in it, and he's great as this, like, jaded ex-lover who's, like, constantly on, like, like feels like he's on the characters. Like, like he's he's trying to track her down because he thinks they're destined to be together. Are you talking about possession? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he wants to own her. Yeah, and... that's, I mean, no, that's, the, that's the exact plot of the movie Possession. The uh, Russian, I think Russian uh, horror film. It's the exact character Sam Neill yeah. plays. <laughs> Imagine, I guess, uh, a horror movie if done very earnest, and you like kind of in the same way an American Friend. You feel for the killers, like, yeah. oh, I hope they don't get hurt when they kill these people. Yeah. You feel for like this guy that's like, oh, I hope he doesn't get his heart broken when he's desperately trying to track her around the globe and she's trying <laughs> to she get does away not from want him. yeah she's yeah. trying to get away from. Yeah. Wait, is there a movie you would say you could watch it in chunks or do you recommend just? It's actually down for split five into three parts. Okay, so it's, it's like end of part one, part two, part three. Yeah, you don't have to sit down and watch it. You could watch it over the course of and basically if you watch part one and you don't like it, don't watch part two. Okay, but if you're intrigued and kind of. I don't know. I think for me, from what I've seen, it's his like his last great fiction film. Hmm. Okay, I want to make it instead of you know part of my summer reading. Yeah, I mean, I like I like when I like when movies are. There's a certain kind of tone a movie can have that when it gets longer, the longer cut is always better, just because it adds to that language. Oh so yeah. Feel, like again, going back to Killing of a Chinese Bookie, like the there the Criterion it has both cuts mm-hmm. and basically. The thing you were saying, like, you know, at, in uh, Wings of Desire, when they stop and they show the circus, mm-hmm. most of what's cut out of the um, shorter version of Killing of Chinese Bookie are all the oh, know, yeah. performance scenes. Best part. And those, but those parts are amazing. And, yeah. those, and those parts that just stop this thriller dead um, while you watch this really bad, you know, performance for ten minutes, that adds everything to the movie. 
and I can imagine a Vin Vendors movie that's on point. Like, I would not want to see a hour and a half version of Wings of Desire, you know? Yeah, that's why I don't want to watch the two-hour version of Until the End of the World. Right, exactly. So, uh, that's awesome. Um, Jim, are you uh, ready to give your top three Vin Vendors movies? I believe so. Why don't you start with three? That way your number one's a surprise. You're right. Okay. American Friend, Wings of Desire, and Paris... Texas. Good. Got to get that nice pause in there. Great radio. Um, oh, I, I didn't get to speak about a movie. Real quick, don't watch uh, Scarlet Letter. I don't know why <laughs> he made it. He seems to have no interest in the material. Okay, cool. And don't ever uh, see... Don't also, come as back. the resident Winders fan, don't yeah. watch Scarlet Letter. That's a Brian De Palma thing. I remember yeah, exactly. the one guy was like, watch everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying there's a lot of films you can skip, but the ones that are great, I... I love with a blind. You can skip Million Dollar Hotel, End of Violence, and Don't Come Knocking. Also, we didn't really talk about it, but his documentary work is really intriguing and very good. Oh, when it visa, yeah, yeah. We could do a part two episode sometime and cover his just his documentary work. Yeah, that's probably yes. Is the new documentary at Cannes right now that is very good. Cool. I that's how I always envisioned us doing Werner Herzog was one one episode. We do two part, and one episode would be fiction, and one episode would be documentary. Yeah, like the box sets when they released them. Oh, did they? We got to get on that. That's cool. That's cool. Okay, so what are you? What are your top three? Uh, My top three. um, Number three would be Until the End of the World. Number two, Paris, Texas, and number one, King of the Rose. All right, and um, my number, my top three would be uh, number three would be Paris, Texas. Uh, number two would be American Friend, and then my number one would be uh, Wings of Desire. Terrific! <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sean, thanks so much for being oh, thanks on for having show. me on. It, it was, was great. Fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this was really good. Um, hey, Jim, it didn't end up. We didn't end up being too bad. No, not too bad. I thought I thought for sure when I started this, like I'm just gonna handle. I thought this was gonna be another uh, what's his face? Hal Hartley? Yeah, I thought it was gonna be. No. Yeah, I mean, ways they're hard to talk about in a way. It's almost like, and then it's like, if people haven't seen the films, it's like just like can be like hard to listen to. Sure, sure. I would assume most people who download the episodes would have seen their films. That's how I I thought about uh, Jane Campion. I felt similar to Paris, mm. Texas, where it's like everyone says the piano is amazing, and I'm just watching it, and I'm not getting anything out of it, and I can't explain why I, I can't don't. stand the piano. Yeah, I'm yeah, right. just something about it, just like it's almost like a I don't know how to describe it, but I love Top of the Lake. I was a big fan. I yeah, that might be my favorite thing she's done. Cool. All right, yeah. um, you can uh, find us at directorsclubpodcast.com and send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Um, I, can, I am on Letterboxd at Patrick Rapole. I'm on Twitter at Patrick Rapole. And then uh, I don't know what the future of my viewing journal is because I've just been posting on Letterboxd. So uh, I don't know. Maybe one day I'll move all the past three months of movies I've watched um, there. But for now, that's kind of dead. Yeah. And Jim? I'm at uh, instantgym.com, Letterboxd, Instant Jim, Twitter, Instant Jim as well. And you're an instant. What was that? I lost your <laughs> your instant your your website is instantgym.com. Yes, correct. Where you can find all of that. Um, uh, Sean, 
Um, I'm not really on the internet that much, but uh, if you want to uh, contribute to a fledgling Kickstarter, you can search for uh, Meathead Goes Hog Wild on Kickstarter uh, or Punctuation Films. And, Punctuation uh, Films is on Twitter. Oh yeah, Punctuation Films is on Twitter at at Punctuation Film, and um, contribute if you. Watch the video and like it. If you don't contribute, you're an asshole. <laughs> yeah. That's the pack. <laughs> Trick seal the Plug in my shit. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, it, was, uh, it was great to have you on, Sean. Um, good luck with your Kickstarter. Uh, hopefully, uh, if it gets Kickstarted, we'll be seeing it, and maybe we could have you back on to talk about making the movie and everything. Absolutely, yeah. yeah should be that'd fun. be cool. For sure. So, uh, who are we covering next time, Jim? I can't believe it. It's a director I'm not too familiar with at all. His name is Quentin Tarantino. I'm sorry, the internet just exploded. What's your name? <laughs> Who are we covering? Quentin uh, Tarantino. I'm excited. I'm excited. Not, I mean, this is not going to be a period of discovery necessarily, though I am uh, planning on going back and watching a lot of the sort of exploitation films that I haven't seen that inspired him, particularly like kung fu movies and, and spaghetti westerns. But like, uh, I'm excited uh, because we're going to have Tyler Foster on, um, and he's a friend of mine. He's good. And um, uh, so, you know what we're going to be covering? I was thinking, because it's his 20th anniversary, Pulp Fiction. Uh, you can do Pulp Fiction. And, and uh, Glorious Bastards? Maybe, maybe Glorious Bastards. And Glorious yeah. Bastards would be an interesting conversation. I guess we haven't decided yet, but... Yeah, and I'm sure we'll bring up Jackie Brown. Tarantino. And uh, as always, if you have thoughts on Quentin Tarantino, which... You're listening to a podcast, <laughs> so you have thoughts on Quentin Tarantino. Uh, shoot us an email. You know, yeah, I would love to hear from people who don't like him. Yeah, or just you know, if you think you have a particularly interesting take, if you think mm-hmm. Reservoir Dogs is secretly about the Cold War, like go ahead and leave <laughs> us a email or a voicemail. Uh, we'll mock you, but <laughs> it'll be fun for everyone. Yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a lot of fun. It's, you know, going back to the moment that, uh, you know, again, sort of made me fall in love with movies, with Pulp Fiction. So. Yeah. And I've yet to watch it on Blu-ray, so it'll be fun. Oh, yeah. yeah cool. Get that, get that trivia track going. Yeah. I like, that, I like that Pulp Fiction trivia track. I'm a fan of that. Um, Sean, thanks for being on. Oh, no problem. Everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. Goodbye. Until next time. Goodbye. Farewell. Au revoir. I'll be the same. Yeah. (laughs) That works. Can we just end on the uh, song from Sound of Music? Okay. When everything feels like the movies Yeah, you bleed just to know you're alive And I don't want the world to see me Cause I don't think they'd understand Just want you to know who I am. Yeah. I, I, I saw. Well, he doesn't have to be the lead. Yeah. I saw him in uh, "Of Mice and Men," right? Oh Jesus! Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> I, 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 I used to act. Yeah, you're um, damn good. Thank you. Um, don't don't start making demands just because you contributed <laughs> one sixtieth of the budget. Yeah. Like, we, we were going to for, for ten thousand. Isn't that one of your perks? You could direct a movie. Yeah. <laughs>
but then everyone else shot it down because they thought like that like it wouldn't look like we were serious. But it's like no one's gonna pay ten thousand dollars, and it'd just be funny if someone paid ten thousand dollars to direct it. <laughs> direct a film that has two dual sequences. <laughs> two what? Duels. Oh, like, uh, oh old yes. time. Yeah. Old, there's old time duels. There's old time duels. That's excellent. It's like the guy keeps regressing as it goes on, so he challenges people to a duel as like a way that gentlemen used to handle mm-hmm. the differences. Mm-hmm. Patrick, I'll give you, I challenge I'll give you $200 you if you make Jim play the mannequin. 